This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Pygmalion Spectacles by Stanley G. Weinbaum. It's read by Greg Marguerite for LibriVox. It runs 42 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Pygmalion's Spectacles by Stanley G. Weinbaum. But what is reality? asked the gnome-like man. He gestured at the tall banks of buildings that loomed around Central Park with their countless windows glowing like the cave fires of a city of Cro-Magnon people. All is dream. All is illusion. I am your vision, as you are mine. Dan Burke, struggling for clarity of thought through the fumes of liquor, stared without comprehension at the tiny figure of his companion. He began to regret the impulse that had driven him to leave the party to seek fresh air in the park and to fall by chance into the company of this diminutive old madman. But he had needed escape. This was one party too many, and not even the presence of Claire with her trim ankles could hold him there. He felt an angry desire to go home. Not to his hotel, but home to Chicago and to the comparative peace of the Board of Trade. But he was leaving tomorrow anyway. "'You drink,' said the elfin-bearded face, "'to make real a dream. Is it not so? Either to dream that what you seek is yours, or else to dream that what you hate is conquered. You drink to escape reality.' And the irony is that even reality is a dream. Cracked, thought Dan again. Or so, concluded the other, says the philosopher Berkeley. Berkeley, echoed Dan. His head was clearing. Memories of a sophomore course in elementary philosophy drifted back. Bishop Berkeley, eh? You know him, then. The philosopher of idealism, no? The one who argues that we do not see, feel, hear, taste the object, but that we only have the sensation of seeing, feeling, hearing, tasting. I sort of recall it. Ha! But sensations are mental phenomena. They exist in our minds. How then do we know that the objects themselves do not exist only in our minds? He waved again at the light-flecked buildings. You do not see that wall of masonry. You perceive only a sensation, a feeling of sight. The rest you interpret. You see the same thing, retorted Dan. How do you know I do? Even if you knew that what I call red would not be green, could you see through my eyes? Even if you knew that, how do you know that I too am not a dream of yours? Dan laughed. Of course nobody knows anything. You just get what information you can through the windows of your five senses and then make your guesses. When they're wrong, you pay the penalty. His mind was clear now, save for a mild headache. Listen, he said suddenly, you can argue a reality away to an illusion. That's easy. But if your friend Berkeley is right, why can't you take a dream and make it real? If it works one way, it must work the other. The beard waggled. Elf-bright eyes glittered queerly at him. All artists do that, said the old man softly. Dan felt that something more quivered on the verge of utterance. That's an evasion, he grunted. Anybody can tell the difference between a picture and the real thing, or between a movie and life. But, whispered the other, the realer the better, no. And if one could make a movie, very real indeed, what would you say then? Nobody can, though. The eyes glittered strangely again. 
I can, he whispered. I did. Did what? Made real a dream. The voice turned angry. Fools! I bring it here to sell to Westman, the camera people, and what do they say? It isn't clear. Only one person can use it at a time. It's too expensive. Fools! Fools! Huh? Listen, I'm Albert Ludwig. Professor Ludwig. As Dan was silent, he continued, It means nothing to you, eh? But listen, a movie that gives one sight and sound. Suppose now I add taste, smell, even touch, if your interest is taken by the story. Suppose I make it so that you are in the story. You speak to the shadows, and the shadows reply, and instead of being on a screen, the story is all about you, and you are in it. Would that be to make real a dream? How the devil could you do that? How? How? But simply. First my liquid positive, then my magic spectacles. I photograph the story in a liquid with light-sensitive chromates. I build up a complex solution, do you see? I add taste chemically and sound electrically. And when the story is recorded, then I put the solution in my spectacle, my movie projector. I electrolyze the solution, break it down. The older chromates go first, and out comes the story. Sight, sound, smell, taste, all. Touch? If your interest is taken, your mind supplies that. Eagerness crept into his voice. You will look at it, Mr. Burke, said Dan. A swindle, he thought. Then a spark of recklessness glowed out of the vanishing fumes of alcohol. Why not, he grunted. He rose. Ludwig, standing, came scarcely to his shoulder. A queer, gnome-like old man, Dan thought, as he followed him across the park and into one of the scores of apartment hotels in the vicinity. In his room, Ludwig fumbled in a bag, producing a device vaguely reminiscent of a gas mask. There were goggles and a rubber mouthpiece. Dan examined it curiously, while the little bearded professor brandished a bottle of watery liquid. Here it is, he gloated, my liquid positive, the story, hard photography, infernally hard, therefore the simplest story, a utopia, just two characters and you, the audience. Now put the spectacles on. Put them on and tell me what fools the Westman people are. He decanted some of the liquid into the mask and trailed a twisted wire to a device on the table. A rectifier, he explained, for the electrolysis. Must you use all the liquid? asked Dan. If you use part, do you see only part of the story? And which part? Every drop has all of it, but you must fill the eyepieces. Then, as Dan slipped the device gingerly on, so, now, what do you see? Not a damn thing, just the windows and the lights across the street. Of course. But now I start the electrolysis. Now! There was a moment of chaos. The liquid before Dan's eyes clouded suddenly white, and formless sounds buzzed. He moved to tear the device from his head, but emerging forms in the mistiness caught his interest. Giant things were writhing there. The scene steadied. The whiteness was dissipating, like mist in summer. Unbelieving, still gripping the arms of that unseen chair, he was staring at a forest. But what a forest! I incredible, unearthly, beautiful! Smooth bowls ascended inconceivably toward a brightening sky. Trees bizarre as the forests of the Carboniferous Age. Infinitely overhead swayed misty fronds, and the verdure showed brown and green in the heights. And there were birds, at least Curiously lovely pipings and twitterings were all about him, though he saw no creatures. Thin elfin whistlings, like fairy bugles, sounded softly. He sat frozen, entranced. 
A louder fragment of melody drifted down to him, mounting in exquisite ecstatic bursts, now clear as sounding metal, now soft as remembered music. For a moment he forgot the chair whose arms he gripped, the miserable hotel room invisibly about him, old Ludwig, his aching head. He imagined himself alone in the midst of that lovely glade. Eden, he muttered, and the swelling music of unseen voices answered. Some measure of reason returned. Illusion, he told himself. Clever optical devices, not reality. He groped for the chair's arm, found it, and clung to it. He scraped his feet and found again an inconsistency. To his eyes the ground was mostly verdure. To his touch it was merely a thin hotel carpet. The elfin buglings sounded gently. A faint, deliciously sweet perfume breathed against him. He glanced up to watch the opening of a great crimson blossom on the nearest tree, and a tiny reddish sun edged into the circle of sky above him. The fairy orchestra swelled louder in its light, and the notes sent a thrill of wistfulness through him. Illusion? If it were, it made reality almost unbearable. He wanted to believe that somewhere, somewhere this side of dreams, there actually existed this region of loveliness. An outpost of paradise? Perhaps. And then, far through the softening mists, he caught a movement that was not the swaying of verdure, a shimmer of silver more solid than mist. Something approached. He watched the figure as it moved, now visible, now hidden by trees. Very soon he perceived that it was human, but it was almost upon him before he realized that it was a girl. She wore a robe of silvery, half-translucent stuff, luminous as starbeams, a thin band of silver bound glowing black hair about her forehead, and other garment or ornament she had none. Her tiny white feet were bare to the mossy forest floor as she stood no more than a pace from him, staring dark-eyed. The thin music sounded again. She smiled. Dan summoned stumbling thoughts. Was this being also illusion? Had she no more reality than the loveliness of the forest? He opened his lips to speak, but a strained, excited voice sounded in his ears. Who are you? Had he spoken? The voice had come as if from another, like the sound of one's words in fever. The girl smiled again. English, she said in queer, soft tones. I can speak a little English. She spoke slowly, carefully. I learned it from, she hesitated, my mother's father, whom they call the Grey Weaver. Again came the voice in Dan's ears. Who are you? I am called Galatea, she said. I came to find you. To find me? echoed the voice that was Dan's. Lucan, who is called the Grey Weaver, told me, she explained, smiling. He said you will stay with us until the second noon from this. She cast a quick, slanting glance at the pale sun, now full above the clearing, then stepped closer. What are you called? Dan, he muttered. His voice sounded oddly different. What a strange name, said the girl. She stretched out her bare arm. Come, she smiled. Dan touched her extended hand, feeling without any surprise the living warmth of her fingers. He had forgotten the paradoxes of illusion. This was no longer illusion to him, but reality itself. It seemed to him that he followed her, walking over the shadowed turf that gave with springy crunch beneath his tread. Though Galatea left hardly an imprint, he glanced down, noting that he himself wore a silver garment, and that his feet were bare. With the glance he felt a feathery breeze on his body and a sense of mossy earth on his feet. Galatea said his voice, Galatea, what place is this? What language do you speak? She glanced back, laughing. Why, this is Paracosma, of course, and this is our language. Paracosma, muttered Dan. 
Paracosma. A fragment of Greek that had survived somehow from a sophomore course a decade in the past came strangely back to him. Paracosma! Land beyond the world! Galatea cast a smiling glance at him. Does the real world seem strange, she queried, after that shadow land of yours? Shadow land, echoed Dan, bewildered. This is shadow, not my world. The girl's smile turned quizzical. Poof, she retorted with an impudently lovely pout. And I suppose then that I am the phantom instead of you, she laughed. Do I seem ghost-like? Dan made no reply. He was puzzling over unanswerable questions as he trod behind the lithe figure of his guide. The aisle between the unearthly trees widened and the giants were fewer. It seemed a mile, perhaps, before a sound of tinkling water obscured that other strange music. They emerged on the bank of a little river, swift and crystalline, that rippled and gurgled its way from glowing pool to flashing rapids sparkling under the pale sun. Galatea bent over the brink and cupped her hands, raising a few mouthfuls of water to her lips. Dan followed her example, finding the liquid stinging cold. "'How do we cross?' he asked. "'You can wade up there,' the dryad who led him gestured to a sunlit shallows above a tiny falls. "'But I always cross here.' She poised herself for a moment on the green bank, then dove like a silver arrow into the pool. Dan followed. The water stung his body like champagne, but a stroke or two carried him across to where Galatea had already emerged with a glistening of creamy bare limbs. Her garment clung tight as a metal sheath to her wet body. He felt a breathtaking thrill at the sight of her. And then, miraculously, the silver cloth was dry. The droplets rolled off as if from oiled silk, and they moved briskly on. The incredible forest had ended with the river. They walked over a meadow studded with little, many-hued, star-shaped flowers whose fronds underfoot were soft as a lawn. Yet still the sweet pipings followed them, now loud, now whisper-soft, in a tenuous web of melody. "'Galatea,' said Dan suddenly, "'where is the music coming from?' She looked back amazed. "'You silly one,' she laughed. "'From the flowers, of course. See?' She plucked a purple star and held it to his ear. True enough, a faint and plaintive melody hummed out of the blossom. She tossed it in his startled face and skipped on. A little copse appeared ahead, not of the gigantic forest trees, but of lesser growths, bearing flowers and fruits of iridescent colors, and a tiny brook bubbled through. And there stood the objective of our journey a building of white, marble-like stones, single-storied and vine-covered with broad, glassless windows. They trod upon a path of bright pebbles to the arched entrance, and here, on an intricate stone bench, sat a gray-bearded patriarchal individual. Galatea addressed him in a liquid language that reminded Dan of the flower pipings. Then she turned. "'This is Lucan,' she said, as the ancient rose from his seat and spoke in English. We are happy, Galatea and I, to welcome you, since visitors are a rare pleasure here, and those from your shadowy country most rare." Dan uttered puzzled words of thanks, and the old man nodded and reseated himself on the carven bench. Galatea skipped through the arched entrance, and Dan, after an irresolute moment, dropped to the remaining bench. Once more his thoughts were whirling in perplexed turbulence. Was all this indeed but illusion? Was he sitting in actuality in a prosaic hotel room, peering through magic spectacles that pictured this world about him? Or was he transported by some miracle, really sitting here in this land of loveliness? He touched the bench. Stone, hard and unyielding, met his fingers. Lucan, said his voice, how did you know I was coming? I was told, said the other. By whom? 
by no one. Why, someone must have told you. The gray weaver shook his solemn head. I was just told. Dan ceased his questioning, content for the moment to drink in the beauty about him, and then Galatea returned, bearing a crystal bowl of the strange fruits. They were piled in colorful disorder, red, purple, orange, and yellow, pear-shaped, egg-shaped, and clustered spheroids. Fantastic, unearthly. He selected a pale transparent ovoid, bit into it, and was deluged by a flood of sweet liquid to the amusement of the girl. She laughed and chose a similar morsel, biting a tiny puncture in the end. She squeezed the contents into her mouth. Dan took a different sort, purple and tart as rhinish wine, and then another, filled with edible almond-like seeds. Galatea laughed delightedly at his surprises, and even Lucan smiled a gray smile. Finally Dan tossed the last husk into the brook beside them, where it danced briskly towards the river. Galatea, he said, do you ever go to a city? What cities are in Paracosma? Cities? What are cities? Places where many people live close together. Oh, said the girl, frowning. No, there are no cities here. Then where are the people of Paracosma? You must have neighbors. The girl looked puzzled. A man and woman live off there, she gestured toward the distant blue range of hills dim on the horizon. Far away over there. I, I went there once, but Lucan and I prefer the valley. But Galatea, protested Dan, are you and Lucan alone in this valley? Where, what happened to your parents, your father and mother? They went away, that way, towards the sunrise. They'll return some day. And if they don't? Why, foolish one, what could hinder them? Uh, wild beasts, said Dan, poisonous insects, disease, food, storm, lawless people, death. I never heard those words, said Galatea. There are no such things here. She sniffed contemptuously. Lawless people? Not death? What is death? It's... Dan paused helplessly. It's like falling asleep and never waking. It's what happens to everyone at the end of life. I've never heard of such a thing as the end of life, said the girl decidedly. There isn't such a thing. What happens then, queried Dan desperately, when one grows old? Nothing silly. No one grows old unless he wants to, like Lucan. A person grows to the age he likes best and then stops. It's the law. Dan gathered his chaotic thoughts. He stared into Galatea's dark, lovely eyes. Have you stopped yet? The dark eyes dropped. He was amazed to see a deep, embarrassed flush spread over her cheeks. She looked at Lucan, nodding reflectively on his bench, then back to Dan, meeting his gaze. Not yet, she said. And when will you, Galatea? When I have had the one child permitted me. You see, she stared down at her dainty toes, one cannot bear children afterwards. Permitted? Permitted by whom? By the law. Laws? Is everything here governed by laws? What of chance and accidents? What are those, chance and accidents? Things unexpected, things unforeseen. Nothing is unforeseen, said Galatea, still soberly. She repeated slowly, Nothing is unforeseen. He fancied her voice was wistful. Lucan looked up. Enough of this, he said abruptly. He turned to Dan. I know these words of yours, chance, disease, death. They are not for Paracosma. Keep them in your unreal country. Where did you hear them, then? From Galatea's mother, said the Grey Weaver, who had them from your predecessor a phantom who visited here before Galatea was born. Dan had a vision of Ludwig's face. 
What was he like? Much like you. But his name? The old man's mouth was suddenly grim. We do not speak of him, he said, and rose, entering the dwelling in cold silence. He goes to weave, said Galatea after a moment. Her lovely piquant face was still troubled. What does he weave? This. She fingered the silver cloth of her gown. He weaves it out of metal bars on a very clever machine. I do not know the method. Who made the machine? It was here. But, Galatea, who built the house? Who planted these fruit trees? They were here. The house and trees were always here. She lifted her eyes. I told you. Everything had been foreseen from the beginning until eternity. Everything. The house and trees and machine were ready for Lucan and my parents and me. There is a place for my child, who will be a girl, and a place for her child, and so on forever." Dan thought a moment. Were you born here? I don't know. He noted in sudden concern that her eyes were glistening with tears. Galatea, dear, why are you unhappy? What's wrong? Why, nothing. She shook her black curls, smiling suddenly at him. What could be wrong? How can one be unhappy in Paracosma? She sprang erect and seized his hand. Come, let's gather fruit for tomorrow. She darted off in a whirl of flashing silver, and Dan followed her around the wing of the edifice. Graceful as a dancer, she leapt for a branch above her head, caught it laughingly, and tossed a great golden globe to him. She loaded his arms with the bright prizes and sent him back to the bench, and when he returned, she piled it so full of fruit that a deluge of colorful spheres dropped around him. She laughed again and sent them spinning into the brook with thrusts of her rosy toes, while Dan watched her with an aching wistfulness. Then suddenly she was facing him. For a long, tense instant they stood motionless, eyes upon eyes. And then she turned away and walked slowly around to the arched portal. He followed her with his burden of fruit. His mind was once more in a turmoil of doubt and perplexity. The little sun was losing itself behind the trees of that colossal forest to the west, and a coolness stirred among long shadows. The brook was purple-hued in the dusk, but its cheery notes mingled still with the flower music. Then the sun was hidden. The shadow fingers darkened the meadow. Of a sudden, the flowers were still, and the brook gurgled alone in a world of silence. In silence, too, Dan entered the doorway. The chamber within was a spacious one, floored with large black-and-white squares. Exquisite benches of carved marble were here and there. Old Lucan in a far corner bent over an intricate glistening mechanism, and as Dan entered he drew a shining length of silver cloth from it, folded it, and placed it carefully aside. There was a curious, unearthly fact that Dan noted. Despite windows open to the evening, no night insects circled the globes that glowed at intervals from niches in the walls. Galatea stood in the doorway to his left, leaning half-wearily against the frame. He placed the bowl of fruit on a bench at the entrance and moved to her side. This is yours, she said, indicating the room beyond. He looked in upon a pleasant smaller chamber. A window framed a starry square and a thin, swift, nearly silent stream of water gushed from the mouth of a carved human head on the left wall, curving into a six-foot basin sunk in the floor. Another of the graceful benches covered with the silver cloth completed the furnishings. A single glowing sphere, pendant by a chain from the ceiling, illuminated the room. Dan turned to the girl, whose eyes were still unwantonly serious. This is ideal, he said, but, Galatea, how am I to turn out the light? Turn it out, she said. Y you must cap it, so. A faint smile showed again on her lips as she dropped a metal covering over the shining sphere. They stood tense in the darkness. 
Dan sensed her nearness achingly, and then the light was on once more. She moved toward the door, and there paused, taking his hand. "'Dear Shadow,' she said softly, "'I hope your dreams are music.' She was gone. Dan stood irresolute in his chamber. He glanced into the large room where Lucan still bent over his work, and the gray weaver raised a hand in a solemn salutation, but said nothing. He felt no urge for the old man's silent company, and turned back into his room to prepare for slumber. Almost instantly, it seemed, the dawn was upon him, and bright elfin pipings were about him, while the odd ruddy sun sent a broad slanting plane of light across the room. He rose as fully aware of his surroundings as if he had not slept at all. The pool tempted him, and he bathed in stinging water. Thereafter he emerged into the central chamber, noting curiously that the globe still glowed in dim rivalry to the daylight. He touched one casually. It was cool as metal to his fingers, and lifted freely from its standard. For a moment he held the cold, flaming thing in his hands, then replaced it and wandered into the dawn. Galatea was dancing up the path, eating a strange fruit as rosy as her lips. She was merry again, once more the happy nymph who had greeted him, and she gave him a bright smile as she chose a sweet green ovoid for his breakfast. Come on, she called, to the river. She skipped away towards the unbelievable forest. Dan followed, marveling that her lithe speed was so easy a match for his stronger muscles. Then they were laughing in the pool, splashing about until Galatea drew herself to the bank, glowing and panting. He followed her as she lay relaxed. Strangely, he was neither tired nor breathless, with no sense of exertion. A question recurred to him, as yet unasked. Galatea, said his voice, whom will you take as mate? Her eyes went serious. I don't know, she said. At the proper time he will come. That is the law. And will you be happy? Of course, she seemed troubled. Isn't everyone happy? Not where I live, Galatea. Then that must be a strange place, that ghostly world of yours, a rather terrible place. It is, often enough, Dan agreed. I wish—he paused. What did he wish? Was he not talking to an illusion, a dream, an apparition? He looked at the girl, at her glistening black hair, her eyes, her soft white skin, and then, for a tragic moment, he tried to feel the arms of that drab hotel chair beneath his hands, and failed. He smiled. He reached out his fingers to touch her bare arm, and for an instant she looked back at him, with startled, sober eyes, and sprang to her feet. Come on, I want to show you my country. She set off down the stream, and Dan rose reluctantly to follow. What a day that was! They traced the little river from still pool to singing rapids, and ever about them were the strange twitterings and pipings that were the voices of the flowers. Every turn brought a new vista of beauty. Every moment brought a new sense of delight. They talked or were silent. When they were thirsty, the cool river was at hand. When they were hungry, fruit offered itself. When they were tired, there was always a deep pool and a mossy bank. And when they were rested, a new beauty beckoned. The incredible trees towered in numberless forms of fantasy. But on their own side of the river was still the flower-starred meadow. Galatea twisted him a bright-blossomed garland for his head, and thereafter he moved always with a sweet singing about him. But little by little the red sun slanted toward the forest, and the hours dripped away. It was Dan who pointed it out, and reluctantly they turned homeward. As they returned, Galatea sang a strange song, 
plaintive and sweet as the medley of river and flower music, and again her eyes were sad. "'What song is that?' he asked. "'It is a song sung by another Galatea,' she answered, "'who is my mother.' She laid her hand on his arm. "'I will make it into English for you,' she sang. "'The river lies in flower and fern. In flower and fern it breathes a song. It breathes a song of your return, of your return in years too long. In years too long its murmurs bring, its murmurs bring their vain replies. Their vain replies the flowers sing, the flowers sing, the river lies.' Her voice quavered on the final notes. There was silence, save for the tinkle of water and the flower bugles. Dan said, Galatea, and paused. The girl was again somber-eyed, tearful. He said huskily, That's a sad song, Galatea. Why was your mother sad? You said everyone was happy in Paracosma. She broke the law, replied the girl tonelessly. It is the inevitable way to sorrow. She faced him. She fell in love with a phantom, Galatea said, one of your shadowy race who came and stayed and then had to go back. So when her appointed lover came, it was too late. Do you understand? But she yielded finally to the law, and is forever unhappy, and goes wandering from place to place about the world. She paused. I shall never break the law, she said defiantly. Dan took her hand. I would not have you unhappy, Galatea. I want you always happy. She shook her head. I am happy, she said, and smiled a tender, wistful smile. They were silent a long time as they trudged the way homeward. The shadows of the forest giants reached out across the river as the sun slipped behind them. For a distance they walked hand in hand, but as they reached the path of pebbly brightness near the house, Galatea drew away and sped swiftly before him. Dan followed as quickly as he might. When he arrived, Lucan sat on his bench by the portal, and Galatea had paused on the threshold. She watched his approach with eyes in which he again fancied the glint of tears. "'I am very tired,' she said, and slipped within. Dan moved to follow, but the old man raised a staying hand. "'Friend from the shadows,' he said. "'Will you hear me a moment?' Dan paused, acquiesced, and dropped to the opposite bench. He felt a sense of foreboding. Nothing pleasant awaited him. "'There is something to be said,' Lucan continued, "'and I say it without desire to pain you, if phantoms feel pain. "'It is this. Galatea loves you, though I think she has not yet realized it.' "'I love her, too,' said Dan. The Grey Weaver stared at him. "'I do not understand. Substance, indeed, may love shadow. But how can shadow love substance?' "'I love her,' insisted Dan. Then woe to both of you, for this is impossible in Paracosma. It is a confliction with the laws. Galatea's mate is appointed, perhaps even now approaching. Laws, laws, muttered Dan. Whose laws are they? Not Galatea's or mine. But they are, said the Grey Weaver. It is not for you nor for me to criticize them, though I yet wonder what power could annul them to permit your presence here. I had no voice in your laws. The old man peered at him in the dusk. "'Has anyone anywhere a voice in the laws?' he queried. "'In my country we have,' retorted Dan. "'Madness,' growled Lucan. "'Man-made laws. Of what use are man-made laws with only man-made penalties, or none at all? If you shadows make a law that the wind shall blow only from the east, does the west wind obey it?' "'We do not pass such laws,' acknowledged Dan bitterly. They may be stupid, but they're no more unjust than yours. 
Ours, said the Grey Weaver, are the unalterable laws of the world, the laws of nature. Violation is always unhappiness. I have seen it, I have known it in another, in Galatea's mother, though Galatea is stronger than she. He paused. Now, he continued, I ask only for mercy. Your stay is short, and I ask that you do no more harm than is already done. Be merciful. Give her no more to regret. He rose and moved through the archway. When Dan followed a moment later, he was already removing a square of silver from his device in the corner. Dan turned silent and unhappy to his own chamber, where the jet of water tinkled faintly as a distant bell. Again he rose at the glow of dawn, and again Galatea was before him, meeting him at the door with her bowl of fruit. She deposited her burden, giving him a wan little smile of greeting, and stood facing him as if waiting. "'Come with me, Galatea,' he said. "'Where?' "'To the river bank, to talk.' They trudged in silence to the brink of Galatea's pool. Dan noted a subtle difference in the world about him. Outlines were vague, the thin flower-pipings less audible, and the very landscape was queerly unstable, shifting like smoke when he wasn't looking at it directly. And strangely, though he had brought the girl here to talk to her, he had now nothing to say, but sat in aching silence with his eyes on the loveliness of her face. Galatea pointed at the red ascending sun. So short a time, she said, before you go back to your phantom world. I shall be sorry, very sorry. She touched his cheek with her fingers. Dear Shadow, suppose, said Dan huskily, that I won't go. What if I won't leave here? His voice grew fiercer. I'll not go. I'm going to stay. The calm mournfulness of the girl's face checked him. He felt the irony of struggling against the inevitable progress of a dream. She spoke. Had I the making of the laws, you should stay. But you can't, dear one. You can't. Forgotten now were the words of the Grey Weaver. I love you, Galatea, he said. And I you, she whispered. See, dearest Shadow, how I break the same law my mother broke, and am glad to face the sorrow it will bring. She placed her hand tenderly over his. Lucan is very wise, and I am bound to obey him. But this is beyond his wisdom, because he let himself grow old. She paused. He let himself grow old, she repeated slowly. A strange light gleamed in her dark eyes as she turned suddenly to Dan. Dear one, she said tensely, that thing that happens to the old, that death of yours, what follows it? What follows death, he echoed. Who knows? But, her voice was quivering, but one can't simply vanish. There must be an awakening. Who knows, said Dan again. There are those who believe we wake to a happier world, but he shook his head hopelessly. It must be true. Oh, it must be, Galatea cried. There must be more for you than the mad world you speak of. She leaned very close. Suppose, dear, she said, that when my appointed lover arrives, I send him away. Suppose I bear no child, but let myself grow old, older than Lucan, old until death. Would I join you in your happier world? Galatea, he cried distractedly. Oh, my dearest, what a terrible thought! More terrible than you know, she whispered, still very close to him. It is more than a violation of law. It is rebellion. Everything is planned. Everything was foreseen, except this. And if I bear no child, her place will be left unfulfilled, and the places of her children, and of their children, and so on, until some day the whole great plan of Paracosma fails of whatever its destiny was to be. Her whisper grew very faint and fearful. It is destruction. 
but I love you more than I fear death. Dan's arms were about her. No, Galatea, no, promise me, she murmured. I can promise and then break my promise. She drew his head down. Their lips touched, and he felt a fragrance and a taste like honey in her kiss. At least, she breathed, I can give you a name by which to love you. Philometros, measure of my love. A name, muttered Dan. A fantastic idea shot through his mind, a way of proving to himself that all this was reality and not just a page that anyone could read who wore old Ludwig's magic spectacles. If Galatea would speak his name, perhaps, he thought daringly, perhaps, then he could stay. He thrust her away. Galatea, he cried, do you remember my name? She nodded silently, her unhappy eyes on his. Then say it, say it, dear. She stared at him dumbly, miserably, but made no sound. Say it, Galatea, he pleaded desperately. My name, dear, just my name. Her mouth moved. She grew pale with effort, and Dan could have sworn that his name trembled on her quivering lips, though no sound came. At last she spoke. I can't, dearest one, oh, I can't. A law forbids it. She stood suddenly erect, pallid as an ivory carving. Lucan calls, she said, and darted away. Dan followed along the pebbled path, but her speed was beyond his powers. At the portal he found only the gray weaver standing cold and stern. He raised his hand as Dan appeared. Your time is short, he said. Go thinking of the havoc you have done. Where's Galatea? gasped Dan. I have sent her away. The old man blocked the entrance for a moment. Dan would have struck him aside, but something withheld him. He stared wildly about the meadow. There, a flash of silver, beyond the river, at the edge of the forest. He turned and raced towards it. While motionless and cold, the gray weaver watched him go. Galatea, he called. Galatea! He was over the river now, on the forest bank, running through the columned vistas that whirled about him like mist. The world had gone cloudy. Fine flakes danced like snow before his eyes. Paracosma was dissolving around him. Through the chaos he fancied a glimpse of the girl, but closer approach left him still voicing his hopeless cry of, Galatea! After an endless time he paused. Something familiar about the spot struck him, and just as the red sun edged above him he recognized the place, the very point at which he had entered Paracosma. A sense of futility overwhelmed him as for a moment he gazed at an unbelievable apparition. A dark window hung in mid-air before him through which glowed rows of electric lights. Ludwig's window. It vanished, but the trees writhed and the sky darkened and he swayed dizzily in turmoil. He realized suddenly that he was no longer standing, but sitting in the midst of the crazy glade, and his hands clutched something smooth and hard. The arms of that miserable hotel chair. Then at last he saw her, close before him, Galatea, with sorrow-stricken features, her tear-filled eyes on his. He made a terrific effort to rise, stood erect, and fell sprawling in a blaze of coruscating lights. He struggled to his knees. Walls, Ludwig's room, encompassed him. He must have slipped from the chair. The magic spectacles lay before him. One lens splintered and spilling a fluid no longer water-clear but white as milk. God, he muttered. He felt shaken, sick, exhausted, with a bitter sense of bereavement, and his head ached fiercely. The room was drab, disgusting. He wanted to get out of it. He glanced automatically at his watch. Four o'clock. He must have sat there nearly five hours. For the first time he noticed Ludwig's absence. He was glad of it, and walked dully out of the door to an automatic elevator. There was no response to his ring. Someone was using the thing. 
He walked three flights to the street and back to his own room. In love with a vision. Worse, in love with a girl who had never lived, in a fantastic utopia that was literally nowhere. He threw himself on his bed with a groan that was half a sob. He saw finally the implication of the name Galatea. Galatea, Pygmalion's statue given life by Venus in the ancient Grecian myth. But his Galatea, warm and lovely and vital, must remain forever without the gift of life, since he was neither Pygmalion nor God. He woke late in the morning, staring uncomprehendingly about for the fountain and pool of Paracosma. Slow comprehension dawned. How much, how much of last night's experience had been real? How much was the product of alcohol, or had old Ludwig been right and there was no difference between reality and dream? He changed his rumpled attire and wandered despondently to the street. He found Ludwig's hotel at last. Inquiry revealed that the diminutive professor had checked out, leaving no forwarding address. What of it? Even Ludwig couldn't give what he sought, a living Galatea. Dan was glad that he had disappeared. He hated the little professor. Professor! Hypnotists called themselves professors. He dragged through a weary day and then a sleepless night back to Chicago. It was midwinter when he saw a suggestively tiny figure ahead of him in the loop. Ludwig! Yet what use to hail him? His cry was automatic. Professor Ludwig! The elfin figure turned, recognized him, smiled. They stepped into the shelter of a building. I'm sorry about your machine, Professor. I'd be glad to pay for the damage. Ah, that was nothing. A cracked glass. But you, have you been ill? You look much the worse. It's nothing, said Dan. Your, your show was marvelous, Professor, marvelous. I'd have told you so, but you were gone when it ended. Ludwig shrugged. I went to the lobby for a cigar. Five hours with a wax dummy, you know. It was marvelous, repeated Dan. So real, smiled the other. Only because you cooperated, then. It takes self-hypnosis. It was real, all right, agreed Dan glumly. I don't understand it, that strange, beautiful country. The trees were club mosses enlarged by a lens, said Ludwig. All was trick photography, but stereoscopic, as I told you, three-dimensional. The fruits were rubber, the house is a summer building on our campus, Northern University, and the voice was mine. You didn't speak at all, except your name at the first, and I left a blank for that. I played your part. You see, I went around with the photographic apparatus strapped to my head to keep the viewpoint always that of the observer. See, he grinned wryly, luckily I'm rather short, or you'd have seemed a giant. Wait a minute, said Dan, his mind whirling. You say you played my part? Then Galatea, is she real too? Tia's real enough, said the professor, my niece, a senior at Northern, and likes dramatics. She helped me out with the thing. Why? Want to meet her? Dan answered vaguely happily. An ache had vanished. A pain was eased. Paracosma was attainable at last. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hey, I'm Will. And what we're going to talk about? Uh, Pygmalion Spectacles, <laughs> a story by, by Stanley, Stanley Weinbaum. Weinbaum. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm, I'm trying to find it on the page of uh, my printout here. It's from Wonder Stories, June 1935. I also have posted two other versions, one from, I think, 39? Yep, and one from 45, I think. 40, there's one from 49. 49, okay, so it goes 35, 39, and then 45. 49? 49. 49. Okay. Um, although there are reasons to look at all three of them, um, the only text you should be reading is the original. 
And the reason is um, the other ones are edited, abridged. There's much cut out. And I went through uh, with a student yesterday, and he was highlighting all the sections that are missing <laughs> from from later editions. Uh, there is a version on Gutenberg that is fine. The audiobook that everybody will have heard at the time of this recording, or when they're listening to this podcast, uh, is the correct one. It's read by Greg Marguerite, great narrator, dead guy, friend of mine. And um, it it isn't massively necessary that you have read only the unabridged version. Um, because I think I listened to the wrong audio. Which one did you listen to? The one from the one that was on LibriVox. Well, there's a bunch on LibriVox, I think, but the Greg Marguerite one is the correct one. That's not the oh boy, that's not the one I listened so, to. I'll give an example of some of the missing things. So, um, on page 29 of the Wonder Stories version, uh, the second paragraph goes: Dan Burke, struggle, struggling for clarity of thought through the fumes of liquor. Stared without comprehension at the tiny figure of his companion. He began to regret the impulse that had driven him to leave the party to seek fresh air in the park and to fall by chance into the company of this diminutive old madman. But he had needed escape. Uh, this was one party too many. And then all of the following is excised from later editions. And not even the presence of Claire with her trim ankles could hold him there. He felt angry, desired to go home, not to his hotel, but home to Chicago and to the comparative peace of the Board of Trade. But he was leaving tomorrow anyway. So that's all cut out. And then the next part is uh, in. You drink, said yeah. the elfin, uh, elfin bearded face, to make real a dream, is it not so? And then this next part is cut out of later editions. Either to dream that that what you seek is yours or else to dream that what you hate is conquered. And then I, I definitely listened to a edited version of this story by, ah. I, I, I just, I just went to Liverbox and Google. I only came up with one and it's the one I listened to by crystal Layton. Okay. So, so, so here's yeah, what so, I would say. It's not critical that never, you have yeah, read. And, I, I, and you didn't actually send it to me. So I'm, I'm a little, Put off that I, I've not listened to the right version of the story. There are sentences missing. None of the story is radically changed, but there are sentences missing. It's it's just basically, I think, for space, it was compressed. Um, I think this is kind of ironic, considering uh, the first time this happens is in the Startling Stories publication in 39, and they they have it nominated oh, there, for... There it is. I found it. Uh what they call the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Um, wow. <laughs> which is a very nice way of saying it's great. Um, and then uh, I'll read that in editorial introduction from the 1939 publication. And they've got uh, statues, busts of Poe and Wells, uh, Doyle and Verne uh, in that banner for that. It says, uh, editor's wow. note. Problematic. <laughs> exactly. Uh, editor's note. Some stories are forgotten almost as soon as printed. Others stand the test of time. Because Pygmalion Spectacles by Stanley G. Weinbaum has stood the test. It's only five, only five, four years. Uh, has stood the test. We are nominating it for the Scientific Fiction Hall of Fame. In each issue, we will nominate and reprint another favorite of the past. Will you vote for your favorite? This is like... Uh, call, uh, subscribe, and hit the little bell of the period, right? Write in your letter to this editor so we get more feedback and you engage more and we get better ads. 
uh, write and tell us what you think. Uh, we hope in this way to bring a new per- permanence to the science fiction gems of yesterday and to perform a real service to the science fiction dev- devotees of today and tomorrow. And I guess we are those people. The Thanks, guys. Talking about, yeah. Um, I think that this is uh, an incredibly important story, Will. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so too. Weinbaum would have been a much bigger name had he not died very young. Um, it was, uh, yeah, he was from Kentucky. Was he? Uh, he was born in Louisville. Yeah. It said he died in, um, like Milwaukee or somewhere. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, he was in his thirties, right? You're 33. Can you believe that? Yeah. That's like the age I am right now. Seriously? Yeah. You're a baby. I know. Can you believe that a guy had so many great stories? I mean, just even if you just take A Martian Odyssey and this one, those are two science fiction classics. Yeah. I mean, Martian Odyssey, I think, has some issues because basically it's so fucking pioneering. He has to do the literal pioneering of explaining, like, how stuff works, right? There, like, it is so pioneering, he has to do all this work. Basically, he's saying, here's what an alien would look like. And not an alien like, uh, you know, it's got a, it's got some wrinkles on its head, like in Star Trek, where it's an analogy, <laughs> but an actual alien. And then he does it again and again and again in that story, right? And, and it's also like a little bit cartoonish, too. He manages Super to keep cartoonish. it. Super cartoonish. It's so fun. Yeah. It would make a great cartoon, in fact. And somebody uh, yeah. should do that as a cartoon. Um, yeah, so people should uh, go out and listen to that one, too, um, also in the public domain. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, yeah, the story is like, uh, it feels like an early cyberpunk story. I don't know. Absolutely. Uh, it's also raising some uh, philosophical questions about the nature of reality that you like will see later in That's Philip K. Dick and exactly stuff like that. It's all, so. yep. it's, all th- it's all thinking all about that and... He does it all without computers. Like, holy shit, Paul, he, he is basically inventing virtual reality by means of biotech, by means of biochemical tech. But yes. like, he has his explanation, like, it doesn't make sense in a certain sense. But the thing is, is he's, uh, this is why I wanted Marissa here, because she's the real virtual reality person. Right. I've done a little bit oh, back in 1990. I did some, but it was pretty minor. Right. Um, but I get the idea and I've read a lot of stories about it. And more importantly, I played a lot of computer games and this is a computer game where I, I just was looking at a product yesterday. Um, it's, it's, you know, one of those virtual reality mask goggle things, but also has a, like a lower thing that blows heat on your face or cold on your face or sense on your face right it's like yeah like smell o vision yeah except yeah, but, but to a higher except, level yeah yeah so you go near the water and the sound increases in your hear er, earphones but also you can you can feel the the moisture like blowing on your face and then you go into a diner and there's like uh coffee and you can smell the coffee and then there's a lady walks by and you don't even know that she's there until you smell the perfume and then you turn and then you can see her right mm-hmm. and th- that like idea of of getting yourself into the matrix in a certain sense right you know so that you're completely 
embodied in the story is just the tip of the iceberg in this in this story because the way he manufactured it right he's 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 basically doing a bunch of impossible things like saying if you go with it uh you'll feel things that even i haven't created a bodysuit for you to you know feel what the flowers feel like or the lady feels like or the you know the room feels like yeah it's all in your head it's all in your head on the other hand uh it's it, it, it's going to feel real and and also get this it's all scripted so it's like when you're playing call of duty uh on you know first per, uh single player mode and you're sort of on rails you can go down a corridor and go left and right a little bit but you can't like jump over walls you're not allowed to go to because they haven't been filmed or whatever this is and all the dialogue you know when you're playing fallout uh famously when you're playing fallout nobody ever calls you by the name you choose at the beginning of the game right because they can't right. they, they don't have actors to do all the voices all ten thousand actors doing all the different sounds that could possibly be your name so they just call you wanderer <laughs> right? which is nice and genetically uh, not genetically uh, gen- gender well, neutral right well, well kind, of, kind of like you can have any first name you want in the mass effect series but you're always called shepherd there you go Right, because you're always your last name is always separate, so your first name doesn't matter. Right, and yet you're supposed to choose it, and you have all these interactions with people, and and what I love about this story is not only has he anticipated all this and sort of figured it all out, he's also said, "What does it all mean?" Like, dude, does Galatea have a history before he put on that? Ma- before that stuff was poured into his mask does she have volition and we know the answer if we're looking at it from our point of view she's just an npc right <laughs> she she's uh, she was played by an actor right she was filmed on a set she has no volition so when she answers your questions or even your voice comes out at, you know when you're playing a fallout sometimes you'll say stuff or other games you'll say words coming out of your mouth Right, but they're not your mouth. He he put all that shit in here in 1935. Yes, yeah. I mean, it it it, it without a single computer or transistor or or chip. He, but he even goes like um, it's like it was marvelous. Repeated Dan. So real smile the other. I'm reading from the real text now, not mm-hmm. the abridged one. I was like, so real smile the other. Only because you cooperated. Then it takes self hypnosis, and that's and 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 that's true of. Role playing games. I mean, we mm-hmm. before this podcast we were talking about role playing games, and I felt things because I, I, I bought into the scenario and what the characters were doing and feeling. I kind of self hypnotized myself. So of when course. a character in the game last night sacrificed herself, I felt it, even though it's not real. It's not. It's not the per. It's not my friend Lee who's dying. It's her character, but I felt it that. The character went through the sacrifice because I bought into the illusion. I, mm-hmm. and I you did it to yourself. I did it. I did it to myself. So, and and so Dan does it to himself. I mean, yes, it, he's set up with the goggles and with the solution to provide the context and capability to fall into that illusion. But you have to actually want want Maya, want the illusion, and when, then once you do, if you have the right situation, then you can believe it's. As real as the re- as the reality as the reality around us, if not even more so. This kind of reminds me of the movie I discussed this on the podcast before, Existence, 
where we start mm-hmm. off and the the characters are are going to go into a virtual reality game and it turns out by the end of it spoilers that they were they've been in the game all along and they don't even know if they're out of the game yet mm-hmm. or or to another movie inception where at the end we're still not sure whether the main character has actually been in a dream all along mm-hmm. the entire movie or not and the, the top spinning at the end leaves it completely ambiguous as to whether or not this is all just a dream or not mm-hmm. and and Weinbaum got here first 70 years earlier with without technology yeah without without having the explanation available for how it could be conceived he figured out the rules of how it would have to be i love the stuff about laws he spends so much talking time talking about the laws of their land right it's like why yeah. are they talking about this cuz those are like programming rules yo right yeah. she can't say his name <laughs> He thinks, oh, it's just on the tip of her lips, right? <laughs> She's just about ready to say it, but she can't say it because she has no RAM. She's all ROM, right? We have the words yep. for it. Yep, yeah, she is. She doesn't have any. Yeah, she it can't fill it in. She, she can't repeat it. I mean, if she could, it would just be repeating it back, as it were. So, yeah. And I, I really you know, you guys, go for it. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah. You know what else this prefigures is uh, kind of like – uh, emotionally unhealthy attachments to virtual reality that people can develop, right? <laughs> like Krieger's like, waifu? <laughs> on, yeah, uh, yeah. Archer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in this, uh, you know, uh, I listened to this story twice to make sure I, like, got all the details down. Uh-huh. And uh, it's also, like, kind of short. Uh, so, uh, you know, this uh, main character, what I'm able to piece together from, like, comments he makes, he's like, you know, maybe a 29 or 30 year old bachelor. Yeah. He's like unhappy in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, so he's like drunk at this party and like, there's like, you know, a woman with trim ankles there, mm-hmm. but, Sexy. uh, y- trim ankles <laughs> that, that, that does that, that dates this story much more than <laughs> anything else. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, but she's like not paying attention to him, so he's just like drunk in the park or somewhere. Hey, no, it's Central Park. It's it, it, it. This is in New York, and he's in Central Park. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So he's just like drunk, like like outside, and he goes into this like uh, you know uh, virtual reality experience, and he uh, you know he. I mean, he states that he falls in love with uh, this like non-player character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if, uh, Weinbaum's audience in 1935 would have had the, like, uh, the, you know, uh, intellectual frameworks, uh, that we have to understand what's going on here. Uh, but, uh, you know, she is imaginary, right? Mm-hmm. Like that. Was, oh, they that got it. Not- there, there were people just like us back then. They're a little yeah. more racist, uh, cause they had some really fucking weird ideas in their heads because of all the propaganda all around them. But yeah, they're, no, they're just like us. They're definitely getting. This is why it was a, turned into a classic just four years after it's published, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, just follow it to the end. Like, so he falls in love with this fictional character, like genuinely feels it, and then he learns that the actress who plays the fictional character is a real person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, we think maybe he's twenty nine, thirty. She is an undergraduate. She's like maybe twenty two years old, right? Yep, and exactly. he's like, oh, I'm in love with her. So there can be like I can make my real life this game. 
Yeah, so the, uh, it's really interesting to think about, it, especially going through it a second time. Did you do that, Paul? Did you listen to it twice? I I, I, I listened to the abridged version twice, yes. Okay, good. Because um, the first time you're just getting the info, right? And I, I'd read this story years and years ago. But I, if I had understood it, grokked it as well as uh, then, I can't say. But I can grok it pretty well now. And... One of the cool things that happens is she's she makes a plan to leave the land, right, like her mom, um, by dying, <laughs> by refusing, <laughs> by refusing to to participate in her script, right? She's like an NPC character who's decided to not follow the laws of the program. She's going to refuse her lover, whoever it is that comes, and. In dying, she may be able to escape because there's some land that's better after, right? And of course, this Paracosma is the what's he call it? He says the land beyond something like that, um, uh, and the world beyond, or something like that. She, she uh, eventually her avatar in our world <laughs> um, is going to meet our hero, and maybe they're going to fall in love and all that stuff. But our world is the fallen world, right? Our world the is the shadow realm. The shadow, shadow realm. realm. It's full of all sorts of bullshit laws that only apply to, uh, you know, people and they're organized and they can do all sorts of horrible things to each other with these laws and, and you know, have shitty jobs at the board of trade and all sorts of things, right? But at the end, he breaks the glass, the goggles, the liquid pours out, right? And he says, oh, it's no big deal. <laughs> um, He's got other liquids, but I, it makes me think also, you know, she does escape and in a certain sense, although did she exist before he went into the matrix? You know, um, that's never, we don't find out about her until after, um, we don't yeah, find we, out. We find out in the last couple paragraphs. Yeah. Right. And then we go back to how the whole story started. There's two guys in that park. There's, uh, our, Gnome, right? Elf. Yeah. Which, is a, which is a very interesting, deliberate word choice. Of course there. it is. Of course. And, and, and Weinbaum comes up with this explanation for why it was good that he was short. It's because he's wearing the cameras on his head, right? Because <laughs> so he looks like a normal height because he's walking around with a camera on top of his head. I like love a, it. Like a I Google car, you know? Or <laughs> presumably like all those, um, there's VR sex porno- pornography things. I, I have no idea how they film those, but cyber sexing, yes. But, uh, yeah, if you're, if you've got the VR gear and you want to masturbate to, uh, beautiful uh, sex that's all 3D without the, I guess, the sense and <laughs> the feelings. Yeah, without the sense of vision. Um, you've got, you've got, uh, you got to get short guys <laughs> so that it looks like the right height or whatever. In any case, we find out that he's in the park for a similar reason. He's dejected having had a meeting instead of a party because the, the camera company that he wants to sell his product to, um, he's, they, they say it doesn't scale. <laughs> right. And this is actually an issue with VR. This is one of the reasons why it's not more popular than, than, uh, it sh- basically should be. Is because first of all the equipment's expensive, right? Second of all, your audience is one. When you have a movie, you can really make savings because you have hundreds of people in a in a theater. This one, there's a theater of one, so everybody has to have the gear. Everybody has to have a copy of the positive, that liquid that he pours into the goggles. 
um, the electrolysis, all the all that <laughs> VR gear is very expensive, and it is in our world I mean, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's as you say, why VR isn't as popular in our world here as it might it, be because yeah, it's expensive. It, 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 yeah, it's expensive as heck. So he says that he he took it uh, this um, uh, what's what's our our uh, scientist name? I can't remember. Burke is our hero. I, I made notes, but I, they're not on the copy. I mean, these people don't have, like, real personalities either, right? Like, no, no. Like, <laughs> that's, not, that's not really important for the story, though, is it? Yeah, Ludwig. Yeah, no, they're, they're, Ludwig. They're, Professor yeah. Ludwig. Ludwig. Professor Ludwig. Ludwig. <laughs> yeah. Ludwig, Ludwig, yeah, which yeah, invokes um, Mad King Ludwig and whatnot. So I think, I think it's, it's deliberate on his part. It's because definitely... Because what, Wyman's very erudite. I mean, Paracosma is mm-hmm. what he calls it, which is the land beyond. And then Galatea gives Dan a name of his own, which also is, which also has Greek, Greek roots. Um, mm-hmm. what was the name that he called her? That he, she called him, she called him remember. something. Um, in any case, Ludwig, um, he tried to get to sell this to somebody. So presumably they had the meeting and he didn't just explain it. He, he sat somebody down in his hotel chair or he went to their office and sat them down in a hotel in, in a chair there and gave them the, uh, girlfriend experience, I guess is what it is, right? Um, totally. That's what it is. It's a dating sim. It, yeah. It's a, it's, it's, he's saying, look, we can use it for, for romantic en- engagements or training purposes or whatever. Just, Give me some money, right? This is great stuff. And he, he went to all this expense setting it up, uh, filming it on the campus of his school near Chicago and blah, 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 right? But uh, when we get into the world with Dan and he's describing the world around him and he's hearing, you know, he's also saying things not in his own voice. And then Galatea says to him, you know, what happened before in their world, and he's asking about where cities are. I got the sense that maybe uh, the program that he's running inside the glass it has a memory because there is this backstory about you know his uh, the mother, right? She, yeah, par- her parents going off somewhere, and maybe they'll return. Someday. She she broke the law, right? Uh, who is this person? I'm thinking maybe that's the previous guy who went into the machine, right? The the father was the and like she says, my destiny is to have a female, a, a baby girl who will be also called Galatea, right? So it's like a cycle. Yeah, yeah, because she she mentions her, that's her mother's name, so yeah, that's right. And and then we've got you know all these things that we can't talk about. We can't. I, I can't answer that question. The laws of the laws that have always been this way. So there's there's like. Um, it's not just a story about, hey, it's cool, VR. It, this is actually, uh, and this is another reason why we want to have, uh, our, our crew of people who are on Elf, Elf Trap is because this is kind of an Elf Trap story too, except it's, instead of it's a fantasy story, it's a science fiction way of getting into the fantasy realm. All those elfin and fairy, and she's called a nymph at one point, right? A dryad, a dryad, point. right? He's doing all this work. Maybe you could say his style isn't the smoothest. He's not a Ray Bradbury. He doesn't, he doesn't have exactly the, you know, the most polished style. He was, he was 33 when he died. Give him a break. But more importantly, it's actually pretty, pretty competent and it's full, like super rich full of 
all of this secondary world stuff that's at very high level for a very short story. But more importantly, it's science fiction in the real way that very few things that purport to be science fiction are, right? Uh, planet stories, I love, I love planet stories, but generally they uh, didn't, didn't have any tech ideas at all or what the consequences of tech were, right? They, there are, there were stories in planet stories that were hard SF, right? But they were about gravity and how, how mass works and stuff like that. There are stories by Philip K. Dick in there, uh, that are about, uh, social relations and, uh, psychology and, and, uh, also had rocket ships, like pretty much every story in that thing. There's a great planet story story about a alien worm that's come to earth and eat everything and the humans become parasites and take off and, uh, as parasites on, on the backs of these worms and become interstellar, right? Interstellar. Wow. It's an amazing story. Tons of great stuff in planet stories, but generally the way the stories there work is they are sort of space opera in the sense of horse opera, yeah. right? The Western magazines, you get, you get the ranch and you got the girl with the six, six guns and you have a story in which there's a bunch of aliens fighting and there's usually a little hint of an, a science fiction idea somewhere in there, but it feels a lot more like a sort of a shorter, shittier version of an Edgar Rice Burroughs Barsoom book, right? It's not that it's shitty. It's just, not as good, right? It, well, I mean, it's fantasy, basically. Right, it's fantasy. I mean, it's science fantasy. Yes, it's science fantasy. That's not what we got here. We have genuine science fiction of the kind where if you don't read this, you are missing out on a pioneering idea and showing how the power of, or science fiction in some cases, right? And this is a Hugo Gernsback magazine at the at this time, <laughs> right? Uh, Wonder Stories is the one he got after uh, Astounding was taken away from him. This is genuine sf in a way that uh almost even like hg wells doesn't do he wine it's hard to understate the power of weinbaum's ability to pre preview things that are possible in a in a story like this basically he's thinking a lot about computer programming when there's no computers that's a pretty amazing achievement and you know, Martian Odyssey is not about about science exactly. It's about thinking out of the box with what what alien minds could be like, right? Here, it's about human psychology in relation to a possible and actually conceivable future in which uh, Plato's cave is the reality. I mean, it's truly speculative. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and speculative in ways that aren't like, well, maybe this might happen. No, he's, he's laying out the laws and he's sort of pre. So one of the amazing things about this story, Paul, is it even says it's a utopia, right? Paracosma is a utopia. Yeah. Nobody. And it's like totally not. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's not a utopia. Well, Lies. well, in a sense, it is. Um, in the sense that think about this. Is this a sense that it's no place? meaning no place so, yes. I, that was not what i was thinking about but you're right about that for sure um no i was thinking like if you look at what sells in computer games i was just looking at uh one um uh a guy from pulp covers was uh, talking about it's called strange brigade um you guys seen this game i've not it's a it's a so it's a console and pc game 
basically it's a co-op uh it's like the mummy movie except uh with guns and you run around shooting things there's puzzles and mummies to kill and blah 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 and it's got great narration it looks like a fun game only thing is it's like almost every game i mean i play them all the time the first person shooter this is the opposite of a first person shooter right? <laughs> right he actually doesn't have that much freedom of movement there's nothing to shoot at nobody dies in this story exactly um and what do we see VR as actually being? They're almost all first-person shooters. And if they're not shooters, they are um, sword fighting games or boxing games, right? They're all violence-based games because it's easy. We understand it. It gets our adrenaline going. It gets our ideas going. This this is uh, like playing Fallout or, you know, even a game like Long Dark, which is a first-person shooter in the sense that there's guns and it's first-person. But most of the time you spend around like making coffee and trying to keep warm and chopping wood and stuff like that, right? <laughs> so it's a first-person yeah. shooter, even when it's not a first-person so, shooter. And that's my point is he's, he's saying, well, the reason I can't sell this is they're, they're fools. Actually, the program's wrong, right? And what's so amazing about all this is he's also basically said some really interesting things about sexuality as in having – the purpose of of gender selection and and uh, gene mixing, like in this world of Galatea, she's a clone of her mom, basically. All those fruits willingly give themselves. They don't know what death is. It is paradise in a certain sense, right? But also there's no freedom of movement. And because there's no disease, um, there's no need for genetic... Um, diversity, which is the whole pur- purpose of sex, is to mix up the genes so that you're more impervious to diseases, right? And and I think it it does social cohesion too. But yeah, well, yeah, but you don't need social cohesion well, if if you know there's two people living in a valley and there's an infinite number of valleys, right? Fair enough. That the thing about this story is the the reason it didn't sell is mostly because he didn't do it the right way. He should have done it first person World War One simulator, right, <laughs> or, or whatever. He could have made it a space battle simulator. It, it, he put the wrong program in. But uh, it it the fact that you know it's a an echo of Eden, right? This place where oh, definitely. You, it, I mean, you you live forever. There's the fruits give up to you, but you can't leave, and to leave means you can't return because you're violating the law, right. capital L. And the law is given, and they don't know. Like all the buildings were there, right? It's all it's 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 the perfect place, and it's also a fantasy, right? Eden was a fantasy, but it kind of represents uh, maybe a pre-state in before. You know, animals were animals, but even plants are in competition with each other. And so it, it's basically, it's, it's representing the womb, right? The life before you actually have to worry about the outside world. The womb's a, a nice place, right? It's, there's no, uh, heating problems. There's no, uh, feeding problems. It's all perfect if you get out of it and, and live um, through it. Wait, so wait a minute, wait, wait, go, 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 go. I want to think. I think about that for a second. Are there any animals in this Eden besides no, besides the grandfather and the and the granddaughter? There's not because a, I don't. No, there's birds. Birds song, but no birds. The, no, the bird song comes from flowers. But 
I mean, who goes like wild beasts, poisonous insects, disease, floods, storm, wars, people's death, and she doesn't know any of those. Yeah. I don't think there's any animals in this That's Eden correct. except the people, except the two people. The whole universe uh, of that world doesn't have them. And it also doesn't have a need for sexual selection and, and you know, mi- mixing up the genes because they're, it's not, it doesn't obey the l- rules of our reality, which is ultimately underneath everything, disease is going to get you if you're not uh, genetically diverse, right? That's, right. that's, that's the whole purpose of, uh, you know, bringing, bringing different genes together is so that you avoid the problems oh, of clones. N- 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 now, now I have a head cannon. I wonder <laughs> if the grandfather and the granddaughter themselves are not animals. Um, there's well, a, there's what's a, so there's great a, is he's romancing his own niece, dude. Is he? Is he Ludwig is this? the cameraman for this right. recording. Well, yes. Which, so which is kind of, which is when kind he's of romancing his, his niece, um, it's all for show, right? It's all for the play that he's going to be producing. And then right. what's what's he do when he meets uh, the guy again, our hero? He says, "Hey, you want to meet my niece?" <laughs> yeah, like, no, but I was, but I was thinking with the whole thing with nymph dryad. What 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 if the what if the the two characters in this valley are themselves not animals? I mean, in the in the Glorantha role playing universe. Here I go again. There is a species called the Aldemi, which are commonly translated as elves. And what they are 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 plant people. They're not human. They're not animals. They're basically ambulatory plants. And that's why they protect the forest because Mm. they feel a kinship to those. Now now I have a headcanon that that inside this virtual reality, Galatea and and the the Grey Reaver are Aldemi. That's why – so there are no animals at all within that world except except for the visitor. I like that headcanon. And it would also make sense. So, I mean, he, that's why he can't be with her because they're completely different species. And when you listen within the world, she's looking for a mate. She's looking for someone to pollinate her. <laughs> am, am I going too far here, Will? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that uh, – go for it, Will. I, I don't know what too far is. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, I mean it's – I think it raises interesting philosophical questions to say, okay, like – there's this fictional universe inside this fictional story, and I now have headcanon for the fictional universe mm-hmm. inside the so, so like my headcanon for the story within the story. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, I mean, uh, 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 I think that that's uh, certainly a sign of the current moment. Anyway, I, I don't think there's any reason to think of them as animals or plants, really, because none of the plants are plants, right? That it, it's uh, I, I made none this, of it's real. I, I start uh, yeah, it's club, this. yeah, it's club mosses and trick for trick uh, macro photography, basically. And and when I was thinking when I when I was reading, it, I was thinking of uh, once once upon a time before they cut it down. There was these there was these bushes outside the apartment building that had these interesting um growths on them and i once took my macro lens and i took a couple pictures of them and it looks like an unearthly landscape if you call my macro mm. photos it looks like it looks like another world mm-hmm. fortunately those bushes are cut down now so i can't do it i have to do it again with them but yeah but i was thinking like oh that's how he did oh mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense there's a um, uh, oh, go for it yeah i want to pull a thread that you uh you left dangling earlier jesse mm-hmm. and that was uh, when you talked about the fictional universe, uh, like within the story, as uh, there's something womb-like about it, mm-hmm. 
Um, I think that, like, I think it raises some, like, uh, philosophical questions about, like, virtual reality and these mm-hmm. kinds of uh, immersive uh, experiences. Uh, a couple years after this story was published, I think 1937, you have uh, uh, Star Maker by Olaf Stapledon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he uh, he actually invents a lot of the science fiction tropes in that book. But That's uh, all he did, yo. Yeah, um, but uh, uh, the the first people he visits are called the Other Men, and uh, this is important background for the point I'm trying to make. They uh, uh, they relate to each other mostly on the level of taste, like that's their like primary sense or sense, and they uh, you know they have like uh, like it's on their hands, it's on their feet, it's uh, on their mouth, it's on their uh, genitals actually, um, and. Uh, the way that the ruling class uh, keeps control of these people uh, is moving towards, uh, they have these little like, uh, like radios that like send like taste to your hands. Um, And so people want to be like built into these like wombs uh, where they're just receiving the, like the taste radio signal. Uh, (laughs) They call it the radio bliss Uh uh, on their like various like uh, tasting organs outside their body. Um, And uh, you know, Olaf Stapleton, like, made it very clear that uh, at least his protagonist in that story thought that was very bad. (laughs) Um, uh, This particular planet had communists as well, and the communists were like, you all are using this to control the people. It's terrible. Uh, Don't do it. Uh, and but everybody wanted to get in on the radio bliss, and I mean you see that in like mm-hmm. later science fiction as well, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder. Um, I wonder if this story, uh, you know, it's asking if there's like a difference between uh, you know the fictional universe of the radio bliss or whatever, and like real life, and the uh, the, the protagonist isn't good at making a distinction in his mind, right? No, right. Yeah. Uh, um, cause, uh, he's, uh, he's like, oh, this actress who played this character that I quote <laughs> fell in love with, um, like I wasn't actually able to like have any part of the story other than stating my name. So every interaction I had with her was scripted by this, uh, you know, this, this magic, uh, liquid. Um, and you know, this is the life that I would prefer. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to move to New Zealand uh, because Lucy Lawless is is great in Spartacus, and uh, she, she's <laughs> exactly the same as she was on the show, and we're going to fall in love like that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you get celebrity from it too, but it's also like uh, you're. Uh, I mean, it's crazy that mass culture had reached the point in the 30s where people were able to like come up with these ideas already mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. then, right? There's a whole nother level to this um, in thinking about, like, we're reading this story. If we're reading it on the page or having uh, Greg Marguerite narrate it to us, we're reading this story. And there is this willing suspension of disbelief, right? That uh, uh, the words coming out of the, char- the main character, our hero's mouth, the main character's mouth, are not our words. But we're taking them as our words in a certain sense that, that we're just ex- passively accepting them. As does he in this story, Right. He no he he makes it, it comes several times in the story where he says words and then he notices that they're not in his voice. It's because they're all Ludwig's voice, right? And Ludwig's also the little. Uh, wait, maybe Ludwig isn't the little man. Yes, uh, he is. Is how did he film himself? <laughs> maybe there's like a whole a other level on his here, head, right? Uh, so he's, uh, he's the weaver, right? 
He's the Silver Weaver, and he's got what's his name? Oh wow! I just realized that doesn't make any sense, does it? So he's both. So he's both the 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 person romancing his niece, and he's like the person who's saying, "Don't romance my niece." That's correct. Wow. Yeah. Jesus. That's that's a little bit of a schizophrenia there. The Gray Reaver. Um, and he's he's weaving clothes all the time. It's super rich. A Lucon is his name. L e u c o n. I never looked that one up. That was Lucon the Gray Weaver. Um, yeah. Um, that's. I mean, because we get Philip, we get we we get the uh, we get the other name, um, for him. That that the one that Galatea gives him. While you look that up, I want to tell you about two things. Philometros, which means measuring yeah. love. Measure. Yes, lo- the measure. The measure. Measure of, of my love. Yeah. So there's a uh, um, uh, Lucon. Yeah. A sponge of the most complex structure composed of a mass of flagellated chambers and water channels. Um, also in Greek mythology. There's a lot of water in this thing. Um, he, was, um, um, he was a son of uh, of uh, the Mesobiah, the Athemis or Poseidon. He said, said to have died of sickness. So um, let me read you. He let himself grow old. Ah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Let me let me read you uh, the Wikipedia entry for um, Robert Nozick's idea of the experience machine or the pleasure machine. You guys may have heard of this. This is big in philosophy. Uh, the experience machine or the pleasure machine is thought, a thought experiment put forward by philosopher Robert Nozick in his 1974 book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. It is one of the best-known attempts uh, to refute ethical hedonism and does so by imagining a choice between everyday reality and apparently preferable simulated reality. If the primary thesis of hedonism is that, quote-unquote, pleasure is the good, then any component of life that is not pleasurable does nothing directly to increase one's well-being. This is a view held by many value theorists, but most famously by some classical utilitarians. Nozick attacks this thesis by means of a thought experiment. If he can show that there is something other than the pleasure that has value and thereby increase our well-being, then hedonism is defeated. So here's the thought experiment. Nozick asks us to imagine a machine that could give us whatever desirable or pleasurable experiences we could want. Psychologists have figured out a way to simulate a person's brain to, uh, stimulate, not simulate, stimulate a person's brain to induce pleasurable experiences that the subject could not distinguish from those he would have apart from the machine. He then asks, if given the choice, would we prefer the machine to real life? And this is, of course, part of that movie Matrix, right? The first Matrix oh, movie. Yep. Nozick also believes that if pleasure were the only intrinsic value, people would have an overriding reason to be hooked up to an experience machine, um, which would produce favorable sensations. Now, the, the thing is, is philosophy is often very behind um, <laughs> uh, science fiction these days. Like, uh, you know, science fiction guys are, as you point out, um, well... The, uh, basically, Star Maker is, it's just a philosophy generator, right? It's science fiction philosophy yeah. generator. Um, it's full of science fiction ideas, not fully explored in novel length. They're fully explored in the sense that, hey, look at this, and what about this, and huh? What are, and we don't care about characters at all. Now, um, I, I want to point, this is not really related to science fiction, but I want to point in different directions. Uh, of, of course, you guys all did your homework watching the movie adaptation of this, uh, this, uh, story we read, right? 
movie adaptation? You know, the 1980s classic Mannequin. <laughs> oh my not. god! You didn't. You didn't uh, watch Jesse, it. Uh, I haven't watched it in a long while. Well, it's I about really a. It, but... It's about a guy who falls in love with a statue, and she comes to life, but only he can see him. And then he makes his wish, <laughs> and it's a retelling of. Uh, Pygmalion. Yes. Yeah. Can we? Uh, uh, something I meant to look up but didn't. Uh-huh. Tell me the tell me the story of Pygmalion. That's another way this story okay. is elusive, right? Yeah. So um, basically, there's this artist, and he create. He's a sculptor, and he he doesn't like girls. Uh, they're not pretty enough for him. Not in his town. So he idealizes a woman, um, and then. Uh, he falls in love with the statue and then he goes to a god, um, and prays and says, please give it. He kisses the girl and then she comes to life. Um, and then there's a bunch of uh, accessories after that, but that's the main, uh, thing about it. Now I want to, I, I, we're running out of time and I really want to throw two other, uh, stories at you guys. One is the very famous and excellent story called, uh, the Oval Portrait by Poe, which is about a guy t- having a beautiful wife. He l- thinks she's so gorgeous. He's an artist, and he paints her to death. He paints her into the painting. It's sort of a reversal of this story, right? Or a Pygmalion story, anyways. And then there's this great classic. Um, of people always pooping on how uh, there's old stuff, nothing worth reading. <laughs> Um, it's all problematic because they don't represent blah, blah, blah. There's this old classic story that I'd never heard of until I dug it up uh, that I've done a show on for Reading Short and Deep. It's called The Painter of Dead Women. Um, I, I think our author's name is Edna Worthy. Um, it's about this lady who's on uh, her she's on her uh, honeymoon in Italy with her husband who's, I don't know, famous or rich or something and she goes to a party but it turns out that uh, she was swindled and it wasn't a party um there's a serial killer and i think it's in naples and he kills women by turning them into statues um she's gorgeous uh powerful uh statuesque lady by herself she ends up um defeating him <laughs> um and escaping but the the story, The Painter of Dead Women, is about uh, that same attitude. You've got some deranged sex maniac, basically. A guy falls in love with a statue or whatever. Uh, or a guy who's so obsessed with his wife's looks that he ignores her to death until she's beautifully captured forever young in this painting. And here, you've got a woman who's independent uh, in the sense that she is uh, out on her own. Her husband's staying at home and she goes to confront, uh, she ends up confronting a guy who has been killing women all over the place for, to add to his collection of statuesque women, um, and escapes from it. It, it, This is a perennial theme. So it's not that, I think it was 1919, something like that, that story. Um, it's on, uh, it's on the website. I'll just dig out the date on that. But uh, this stuff is... Um, and who was the author on that? Uh, Edna Worthley Underwood. G- January 1910. <laughs> That's the one. Great story. It's not science fiction, exactly. Um, is it fantasy? I guess it is. But 
in the same way that Oval Portrait is a fantasy, although probably people would classify it as horror because Poe wrote it. Um, the important part is it's engaging with these, uh, the idea of like uh, obsessing over the beauty of women and perfection and all that stuff. And engaging with that sort of really old, deep story of Pygmalion and, you know, the turning of a statue into a live thing. Even um, Robert W. Chambers has a story in the King in Yellow uh, collection where a normally, and I when I found this out in my own life and when I tell it to my friends who are not arty, you know, when you look at a painting and you say, man, how did the artist do that? I just had a friend doing like a scene from the Joker as an artist, like amazing. He's looking at a still photograph and then he's transferring that image to, you know, some digital device. Um, he's not doing it by photocopying it, moving it over and then recoloring it or something. He's like looking at it and drawing it like an artist would, right? You take a photograph of your model and then you create using that. So that idea of copying and creating and transferring ideas it's all built into this and so when you go back to the very beginning of the story and he's talking about like how this a positive the positive the liquid positive works he's it's basically he he's explaining in a photographic techniques right there's an electrolysis there's this there's that and then dan asks well how does the story work right like it, you know a still image and they talk about motion pictures, right? And talkies and all that stuff in here. And they had that technology, both talkies and moving pictures. And he's saying it's, it's basically like that, right? And, <laughs> and of course, it's a film has a beginning, a middle and an end. There's frames, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them, right? Still images all put together. Well, he says, well, what about this story? It's a liquid. He says, how does it matter how much you put in? Well, you just have to fill up the goggles, he says. And he, and then Dan still doesn't understand. And he says, every drop has the whole story. I'm like, wow, (laughs) how does that work? But also it's like, think about it this way. It's like, um, every drop of the guava juice that I'm drinking tastes like guava juice. Oh, I was afraid you're going to go homeopathic on us for a second. No, no. Um, in God. fact, um, one of the other small details I neglected to mention, Will, from the um, Galatea story is uh, her milky white skin because she's a statue, right? <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, that's that's the, on the nose. Uh, well, but also the milk, uh, milky color of the liquid in the goggles. Oh, right. So he knows what he's doing here. This uh, Stanley G. Weinbaum, he really did know what he was doing, and somehow it, it ended up being a sale and you know being reprinted and all that stuff. But the important part is, I don't think he was looking for a commercial, <laughs> like looking at what the market was saying. This is what we need. I think he was just an idea man who happened to be able to write write stories, which is not every something everybody can do. And we were basically very badly hurt as human beings by his death because we lost out on all the stories he didn't write. Tons and tons of stories he could have written. It's, it, it, it is a tragedy. I would have loved to see what he could have done with a, with a, with a longer life and a longer publication. Right. Science fiction would have been different, I think. Yeah, which, which it makes me want to read more of his voice. stuff. 
in the camp yeah in the full Campbellian era. It, I mean, I maybe Campbell's influence would have been so unitary for so long as we found out in the whole astounding and then the when we read when we read astounding maybe i, I maybe don't think we would have been adapted. as obsessed with uh so much fucking telepathy oh and and say nothing of dianetics and crap yes well that's all sort of the same bunk right? well, it's like it's, yeah it's they didn't know it at the time. That that's the good the good news, right? And that's also the good news about uh, Lovecraft. They didn't think that what they were talking about was bunk. They thought it was real, and they treated it seriously because they thought it was real. There are no reasons to think that uh, any of the ideas of race science, if if you would want to call it such a thing, um, are real today. Because there's no evidence that uh, even the the one guy Charles Murray who, you know, has this IQ theory, this whole uh, IQ tests are are all tied up in this eugenics uh, mania and and bullshit gene theory that's untied to <laughs> race is is as bad a concept as we've had in in science. It's just nobody nobody's obsessed about how stupid people were about phlogiston, right? Phlogiston the <laughs> Theory of before oxygen for why frogs died when you put glass glasses uh, glass bottles over them or why candles went out. When the explanation well, I is, always thought it was frogs and not phlogiston, but maybe I'm maybe I've been wrong all this time. Well, uh, the candle goes out because uh, the air has been dephlogisticated, and the frog dies because the air has been f- f- dephlogisticated. Well, you just come up with the theory of oxygen, and then suddenly everything makes a lot more sense. And nobody ever gets upset that somebody used to be a phlogiston theorist, right? Because on the on, why on would the other you? on the other hand, as as counterpoint, the the whole luminiferous ether was argued for a long while after it was disproved by the Michelson Morley experiment, and and a lot of people, a lot of good astronomers would not accept. Plate tectonics. There's all sorts of plate plate tectonics, and they would also would not accept the expanding universe. So, in, in fact, I I recall an old science fiction fiction but novel. Nobody like cancels that. them for where, that. Is my where, point? Wait, wait, wait. They basically well, yeah, them. but like they're like uh, you know. I mean, I think having like bad science about how oxygen works or not knowing how oxygen works is like. Uh, like I do believe that all these people were like sincere racists or whatever, but I don't I don't know if like uh, the, the consequences I, like, are not the same. Absolutely. Yeah, I just I, I don't know if it's uh, you don't get a job at a, at a place because you're the wrong skin color is not the same as uh, you don't understand how oxygen works. Right? Or like you know like the white people get to govern Africa because they can't govern themselves right, because right. we have the a white theory. man's burden, etc. Yeah, yeah. So it's I, all justifi- It's self justifying and all that stuff. But on the other hand. The people who are just, you know, living in that world and not running that world uh, are subject to the same. Like, uh, you know, there's a lot of Russia Gates stuff. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. It's all bullshit. But if you buy into it at all, I feel sorry for you because there's so much propaganda pushing it. How how can we like all we can do is try and, you know, de deprogram. You. <laughs> That's all we can do. Right. Because it's not like you, you're choosing to be fooled. I don't think that's, I think you are fooled. I don't think you're choosing to be fooled. Like, they're not communists. 
they haven't been communists for a long time, even if communism was a problem. Uh, they're not communists. So what, oh, the adverse, it, it, it's the same sort of stuff, right? So there are massive consequences to mistaken beliefs. But if you, if you look at the context in which people's beliefs are happening, yeah, the expanding universe doesn't seem to have much consequence for anybody. Because right? we're not going to live to see the the big uh, cooling, the big the, the big crunch, or well, there's the, no or, crunch, or, right? As, uh, as far or, as or the reverse, whatever, uh, yeah, heat or, death. The, the, the heat, heat death, death of the universe is so far away. I don't think we're 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 worrying about that. We've got a, a, a heating problem right now. Not, not not unless we get into a a spaceship and go at uh, lights. Light speed for millions of years, like in Tau Zero. That's the only way we'd ever get well, there. If we, we can if come we out invent on the that other machine, side, though, so it's okay. That's right. Yep. So, uh, great story, I say. Yeah, I'm, I'm pioneering. Um, That's what it is. Yeah. Even if I only read the abridged version, which really makes me mad. Listen to the you got version. the gist. You got um, the gist. It's absolutely the same story. It's just, it's, it's just leaving out little bits of text here and there. Flavor text. Yeah, f- absolutely flavor text, and it is good yeah. flavor. So, if you- trim ankles, <laughs> very <laughs> trim ankles. Um. Uh. So. Uh. Uh. If we have time for this, mm-hmm. uh, do does anybody know if this was if like Stanley Weinbaum was uh, important to people who came after him in terms of like actually reading him and that yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, I think so. I, I've read like a comic adaption of the Martian Odyssey from mm-hmm. the 70s, so I feel mm-hmm. like people were still reading him. Is that the cl- classic? Sil- no. Um, What's I, I, the name uh, of there, that there, comic? There was a yeah. There's a bunch of authors who have uh, who have um, cited graphic him classics. And, was that the one? That comic. It was uh no it was in a a Marvel magazine oh, black really? and white. Oh okay. Okay, yeah, I've read that one then too. Yeah, I I'm remembering. That was um a 70s Curtis magazine, I think. Um, yeah, definitely. Great great some great SF in there. Really good adaptations. What were you going to say, Paul? Yeah, I I know there's a bunch of authors who have said they were really inspired by him. Jack Vance was mm. Lester Del Rey, El Sprague de Camp, um I I think I I think I once heard Kim Stanley Robinson say he was inspired by Martian Odyssey mm. into a love of Mars. So he I mean it's it's sad that his influence is so truncated because of the shortness of his life. But he I, I, I definitely think he did leave a mark enough to on uh, future science fiction writers for sure. Mm-hmm. I I think it's time to uh, research into his other stuff because I only know him from basically this and uh, Martian Odyssey. That's that's I, like he's got a novel called Dawn of Flame, and there's one called The New Adam, which sounds like it might be useful for our story today. Um, and and uh, looking at his uh, ISFDB, here's the um, tags they've tagged him with, other than Libervox seven, science fiction six, Mars exploration two, Mars, Alien, telepathy, Venus, uh, five parsec bookshelf. Uh, Anatomy of Wonder Core Collection, Alien Ecology, Exploration, Alien Perspective, Pluto, Space Pirates, there we go, uh, Silicon Life, Titan, Adventure, Title Locking, American, and English Woman. <laughs> oh, and well, 21 I mean, additional he, tags. He had, a bunch, he had a bunch of planetary Doppelganger, 
So yeah, fatalism, passivity. There's a lot of that in this story. Passivity, uh, ethicalness, mutation, ideal futures, soullessness, collective consciousness, intelligent plants. There you go, Paul. Uh, <laughs> see, zone. see, I'm not the only one who thought this. Yeah. See? But Silicon wow. Life, like he's got some ideas, yo, and doppelganger. So uh, I think more time spent uh, reading Martian Odyssey is probably better than some I noticed in that that thread they never said like here's a particular book you should read it was more like um you should read modern anthologies but it wasn't like oh no no but no, there was a separate thread of was there that, that somebody did that they, they they started listing books books up the up the yin yang in the last 5 years that you should read i mean that 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 thread kind of was split, splintered in a lot of different directions and a lot of separate reactions to the thread which is kind of classic twitter it's like not all connected anymore but but yeah there's there's, there's, pl- there's plenty of there's plenty of modern stuff to read there's, as is there's plenty of old stuff to read so listen to this uh scott Poole just responded to my thing about um about uh the change name change of matheson um well, I wrote, uh, but he was not Lovecraft, that's Matheson. And deep down, the reason for the name change didn't have anything to do with Joe Hill thinking he erred with the title for that first collection, Welcome to Lovecraft. And then Scott Poole says, this bothered me, but not a lot. I'm not sure it's cancel culture given the number of specific Lovecraft properties in near constant production. I'm more displeased that the show doesn't have the horror tone and mood of the comics and went with a YA pot, a Potter world feel. Um, yeah, again, I think that's a marketing thing, right? Um, because I think that, I think they think a lot of Netflix is for kids. And I think that's probably true. But I like, I like sort of yeah. dark stuff, you know? Yeah, a lot of Netflix is not for kids. I, I wouldn't put a kid in front of Russian doll, for example. Good I haven't God. Seen that no. one. Is that a it's, good one? I, I, I liked it. Yes. It's, it? it's about a woman who winds up getting caught in the time loop. And just keep living the same. Every time she di- dies, mm. and she keeps dying, all she winds up starting at the same time at the same party every time, trying mm. to figure out what happened and why. And she finds out she's not alone either mm. in the time loop. So yes, it's good. Okay, but 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 I mean, she does drugs and things. So it's like yeah, this is not a kid's story. Uh, well, I was saying my, all my students who are all under twenty, um, who I've let borrow my copies of. Uh, Lock and Key, I've really dug it. And I think they dig it because it's dark. It has kids. But I, I think kids are, kids are very much, I think they're much more resilient to fictionalized violence and horror than are, um, adults who think about what kids are able to handle. Well, yes, there's definitely a disconnect between those two things. Like, That's like there's of- a lot of people who are adults who are triggered. And I don't think there's a lot of kids who are triggered, uh, except the ones that are literally, you know, PTSDing. Um, I don't, I think if you're just a kid and you had a relatively normal life and very few massive, uh, traumas, you'll probably get through it because I did. <laughs> and, uh, I had some pretty terrible traumas and I got through it. Just, I mean, I'm all warped and weird now, but other than that, I'm fine, Paul. <laughs> well, and that's what horror is for, right? Is to help us get mm. through our trauma. I think like, that's right. It make yeah. us feel those emotions in a safe place, in a simulated way, in fact. Right? <laughs> One of my friends. Uh, it, 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 depends, it depends on the people. It depends on the person. Some people 
don't want to engage with their trauma or can't or don't feel up to that. Hey, you yeah. know what we didn't talk about? Um, we didn't talk about the uh, uh, spoilers don't spoil. That was also on the Save It for the Podcast. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. The door asked mother, Mom, do you do? She's like, what the hell? I had to ask my mother what this was all about. And she was embarrassed. She didn't want to tell me. <laughs> oh, Paul, it's all coming out. It's all going in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're not recording yet. I do not have a recorder going. It's okay. I got one going. We, we got it saved. Uh. Just for all time. Just uh, for the Library of Congress. Uh, That's correct. On his tombstone. On his tombstone, it'll... it'll have Paul's embarrassing MP3 file I'll pressable button. <laughs> that it's actually a super really cut of a lot of things Jesse's recorded. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, that's going to be a really long MP3. Yeah. Well, you know, compact flash drives will be very cheap by then. Yeah, but nobody's going to stand there by the by all my keys and listen to it all. It's okay. They can do it virtually. You go to findmygrave.com and <laughs> you don't use you guys don't use that website a lot is my guess um, um no is this like good for genealogy or is it just well like that's what hobby? most people use it for but i use it because canadian copyright law requires you, you know the death date of somebody and i spend a lot of time trying to figure out when somebody died and if that's the same person you know so it's 50 years after death in Canada, it's a and and they're going to try and change it to seventy years, which is really stupid. It, not just because you know it's extending it, but also it, it was a stupid system in the first place. What if you don't know when somebody died? So you have to assume the oldest person ever, like hundred and five years old or something, and then another seventy years after that, and you have to know when they were born too to f- try and calculate. It's a really stupid idea. What can you do? That's what yeah. you get when you get Justin for prime minister. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so, how much research goes into your like determining something is in the public domain? Uh, if it's if it's uh, you know relatively uh, easy to do, it can take a, a couple minutes. So, you name a story, I can look it up or tell you just now. <laughs> name a famous story name a famous story uh, less darkness stuff. fall less darkness falls probably not public domain because i looked it up i believe it was in the 40s last darkness fall and it does not come up because i'm typing it into the name section there we go so it was first published in 1941 oh no that's the 1939 complete novel in probably astounding Oh, unknown. That makes more sense. Uh, so December 1939. So that one I can look up in a folder that has a e-text copy of a printed book. 
uh, that has all the copyright renewals for like 1920 to 1950. So combined uh, author renewals. Here we go. Control F, Lest, Dark, Ness, and there it is. Um, renewed uh, in Smith's Street and Smith's Unknown, December 1939. So it's still under copyright. So, um, like, uh, so what if something is by uh, a John Doe, essentially? Like Anonymous? Somebody used, yeah, somebody used a, a pseudonym and you're not actually sure. Uh, nobody's actually sure who it actually mm. was, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, it would still have to be renewed in the States. Um, so if it's published prior to 1964, uh, I can look it up. Okay. By the title, right? Now, the thing is, is sometimes titles change. Like, Ray Bradbury changes his fucking titles every five minutes. Um, which means, uh, if I looked it up and it was not correct, um, I could have made an error. So, you try and do as much research as you can to ensure these things don't happen. It's like, I guess, what a doctor would do for trying to confirm a diagnosis if they actually cared. Right? <laughs> It's hard to care because you got a lot of people to do and you're busy worried about your student loans. So, yeah, you're kind of like, uh, you're like, you like do a lot of what is essentially legal research. Yeah, it is. It, it is very much like that. And the thing is, is I, I deal with a lot of idiots who say, oh, you know, it's probably not public domain because it's published, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, don't worry. I got this. Uh, the thing is, is I didn't know at the start, right? When you're starting, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. And I, uh, I learned from somebody who also made mistakes. But um, it's it's pretty simple, actually. Uh, now that I know how to do it, it can just take a couple of minutes. Um, and sometimes it takes a lot longer than that. Like if you do have to find somebody's grave, because I want to put it on on the website uh, as a Canadian public domain. If it doesn't use as U.S. I don't want to be stopped. You can't stop me, yo. Can't stop the signal. That's why I need yeah. those servers on the moon or Antarctica. Although Antarctica probably is get outable. But if I had servers on the moon, there's no copyright law up there. I've got a ticket to the moon. I'll be leaving here any day soon. I'm doing music. Sorry. I didn't recognize it. <laughs> I didn't recognize uh, a, I, that. A, 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 I can't sing well, and B, it's an I shouldn't say obscure. It's not a well. It's it's from music that's oh god, 30, 30 years old. God, so I made a rule so. for my friend Steen. He's not allowed to uh, quote anything from the seventies. It's hard for him. <laughs> this is, is nineteen eighty one. So yeah, well, he's older than you. So it's almost forty then. Yeah. Um. All right, we could do a show if you like. Let's do a show. Okay. Yeah, I like doing a show. All right. Let me uh, go to the uh, browser and see if there's anything there. Let's see. Type in... Um, oh, I've got a copy of the story here, too. That might be useful. It's also on Project too. Ah, but is it the correct version? I don't know if it's a different version. Yeah, I, I do. do. Except I don't really know about Gutenberg. I only know about my own PDFs. Uh, <laughs> That's a different fact. And, and also, uh, the Gutenberg in Australia has the, the correct version. All right. So, um, do we have any business we need to get out of the way first? 
Oh, yes. Um, uh, we have to solve all those Twitter save it for the podcast things. Um, I believe there was a few of them. Wow. Did you guys uh, watch the first episode of Lock and Key? Not yet. No, I have not. Okay. Well, lower your expectations. Uh, I saw uh, that it was supposed to be very different from the comic book series. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so this is what I tweeted last night, Paul. You know that what I like about scrappy independent comics? They don't have to worry about being afraid of cancel culture. <laughs> Why do I mention this? For the next show, Netflix show, they changed the name of the town uh, Lock and Key is set in from Lovecraft to Matheson. Uh, I said, Matheson um, was a good writer. Incredible Shrinking Man, Star of Echoes, and most of all, I Am Legend. All good novels. His short stories, Steel, Born in Man and Woman, classics. But he was not Lovecraft. And deep down, the reason for the name change didn't have anything to do with Joe Hill thinking he erred with the title of that first collection, Welcome to Lovecraft. Uh, it's also the name of the town. I'm also looking at the reviews on IMDb. Or I'm looking at the reviews on IMDb and now thinking I will not even finish the first episode, which I did not. Um, and then somebody mentioned that uh, the reason for the name change was to honor a different writer. And I go did a whole bunch of research, including watching a very long YouTube video that had an interview. And he said uh, his explanation for why he changed it. And it wasn't changed by somebody else. It was changed his request, although he wrote it, so I guess it wasn't a request. But um, I thought that was really interesting that <laughs> he uh, changed the name of the town that the story set in. Hmm. But that's not like the main change, is it? Well, I, I, I didn't watch past the first little bit, but uh, what I was reading... Um, was the tone was different so that it was more for kids. And the thing is, is it is a kids series in the sense that it's got a bunch of kids as the main characters. Um, on the other hand, the ideas it deals with are very dark, which is kind of cool. Very Lovecraftian, one might say. Um, and, uh, and when I listened to, uh, his explanation, I finally found it. Uh, I want to read you the excerpts from it because I think it's really interesting. Um, how do I find them? Aha, I got it. Uh, nope, I lost it. You lost it. You lost Oh, my and then there was a ni nice point I made about uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture being the best Star Trek. <laughs> wow, Jesse. Right, and oh. if you don't think so now, just wait a few years. Because uh, I thought like it was the terrible. King of Twitter now. Yeah, I'm, it's true. It's true. I'm dropping, dropping truth bombs all day long. I'm like uh, a nice Barack Obama. <laughs> You're like a nice Barack Obama. <laughs> In that I'm dropping bombs, but they don't hurt people. Oh, I see. You like? Oh, you, yeah, yeah. Your tweets are like your drones, That's, and yes, except like the only things that are hurt are feelings, not. Not uh, human beings. Jesse's tweet ruined my wedding, not Jesse's tweet <laughs> exploded my wedding. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, so uh, so what are your feelings about uh, this name change, though? I can tell that it's like, um, 
both the change itself and the way the change was talked about uh, seems to uh, it seems to be uh, wearisome to your soul, Jesse. Yeah, no, I'm worried because not because uh, you know Lovecraft was a racist because he was, but because it's like uh, there is this insidious thing about canceling everything. So uh, I took a photo of the books. Uh, you know, that had the spine saying, welcome to Lovecraft. And somebody pointed out that the books above it were um, by somebody named Brian Wood, who you probably know, um, Will, but I yeah, I, I didn't know that he had been canceled recently as well. Oh, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> Some, know that. Either. Somebody said I'm he had, and, and I'm like, what? And I looked it up, and yeah, he, he, there was some stuff about – his Wikipedia entry is not very detailed about it, but basically somebody accused him of – uh, being grabby or something, not even grabby. I think it was just hitting on them at a convention or something. And, and it was like really minor, at least what listed on the Wikipedia. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I, I, as long as the comics are good and, you know, I'm not giving money to a guy who's using that money to dope people's, you know, food so that they can, he can rape them. That's probably okay. I mean, I don't like Orson Scott Card's politics, but his books are okay. Right. Anyways, um, so I would say, uh, the problem is, is, is like, it, it just didn't seem right that it had been there. I didn't know that he had made the decision, um, to do it, but the fact that he thought that there needed to be a decision made was curious. So, um, I've watched this video somebody recommended, um, and uh, like an hour and whatever into it, uh, somebody says the word problematic and like, because I was sort of tuned out and, reading on my phone, um, I finally tuned in, and it's, uh, uh, it goes like this. The word problematic perked up my ears, and this, is, and, this, and this is where the explanation for the renaming of the town comes in. Lovecraft's quote-unquote racism went well beyond the common casual racism, racism of his day. Um, that's the end of the quote. I think that that's true he, because he thought about it all the time. Yeah, he was really weird, and so he took a really weird yeah. approach to racism. Well, no, I think he just really took it really seriously. Like it was a, it was a, it was the sort of burning issue of his mind, right? Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But he wasn't like ten times as racist as the next racist guy. He was just thinking about it as a very serious thing, um, as like it was sort of the burning issue of his mind. So is it well beyond the common casual? I guess it's the casual part that yeah, it's true. And then he said, was mentally unwell. And I don't think that that's true at all. I think, as you pointed out, uh, Will, that that is, it, it's like shaming him for being mentally ill. And, <laughs> yeah. And of course that, that is, that's, that's, he's not mentally ill. There's no evidence for that at all. Like, I know, I, I know schizophrenic people. They do not talk like that. He wasn't massively depressed, although he, thought about suicide at some points he didn't commit it he didn't even you know have an attempt and lots of people think about it uh, i've thought about it i also thought mm, maybe later <laughs> you know it wasn't like a major a major uh issue in my mind and i'm i'm not mentally ill i'm very strange but i'm not mentally ill pretty sure about that and then he said um he was scared of women uh that's a quote-unquote um and i think that that is technically true but i think a lot of dudes are scared of women um but also he wasn't scared of women because he lived with women and uh he um 
had lots of friends who were women, like more than normal, probably. Um, and if there is a normal, if you're a dude in 1920s or 30s or whatever. And then, uh, he said he was scared of people with dark skin. And I think that that's sort of true because if you think of racism as being scared of people, I think that that's true. But I don't think like he, he hid under the bed when somebody across the street was black walking by his house. I don't know. Judging from his letters and stuff, I don't know about that sometimes. He was well, a strange he, dude. He, well, yeah, but he was he scared? No, I think it's like it's like when you say homophobia, you don't mean you're they're afraid of gays. It means they hate gays or they're fearful that they're gay or something like that, right? But it isn't like literally fear. So when he says scared of, of people with dark skin, I think that that's technically true in the sense that, you know, he's he's racist, <laughs> especially um, classifying people by their race. He, d- he does it even when he's admiring people, right? Um, saying this guy uh, from Spain is of the high type rather than the low type, etc. Um, and then he says uh, in the video, he says he's, he was scared of sex. Um, and then I said sex was certainly not his top priority. <laughs> but scared makes it sound like he couldn't communicate about it or write about it, and he did, which he did. He did write about it he didn't write about it in, you know, romantic, sexy terms. He said, you know, it's not for me. I read about it in these medical books and, (laughs) and I'm not cool with it. Um, and I said, he really deprioritized it, which, uh, is true with me too, right? It's like not on my priority list. Um, and then, uh, you know, his mom and dad both died of syphilis. Um, Probably that didn't help him thinking about it. I'm not making an apology. I'm just explaining. It, was he scared of sex? Not according to his wife, right? <laughs> uh, no, she literally wrote a letter or a, rem- a remembrance and saying he was an adequate lover or something like that, which, you know, doesn't sound like he's really enthusiastic or anything, but uh, whatever. And then the one of the interviewers says, so you're, what you're saying is he was a Republican. <laughs> that was a joke, so I I don't impugn that on anybody. But actually, he wasn't a Democrat or a Republican, and he didn't believe in democracy. <laughs> He's an elitist Anglophile, a Tory, a conservative, um, and yeah, he, he didn't he didn't really think very deeply about politics. Um, well, he was notorious. Notorious is that a notorious? I, oh, oh uh, okay. Uh, yeah, sorry. well, in Canada, Tories are like conservatives. So yeah, I, so I it took me a while. To get, I get it. I get it. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> that was that was a good one. <laughs> I, uh, I broke the flow with my attempt at a pun. He was completely grossed out by the human experience and and hardly wanted to leave his house. That's a one sentence he said. Um, I think the first part is true. There's something about that. He was completely grossed out by the human experience. He had a, a lot of contempt for a lot of human activities. Um but he said, you know, curiosity, there's a great letter on that uh, Voluminous podcast and talking about how curiosity is the greatest uh, human emotion rather than like fear being the oldest and strongest, as is in the quote from the famous Supernatural and Horror essay, right? Um, so, yeah, curiosity is not sexual curiosity or like well, what's in the oven. It's more like um, what exists and what's out there on other planets and what does this uh, physical law actually mean and like that. So he was definitely into um, 
some human experiences, but he was grossed out by the body and the meat. Absolutely. Um, and then he says he hardly wanted to leave his house. That is one of those standard things you hear about Lovecraft. But Paul, you, you've read a lot of this stuff, the biographies with me, and that's clearly yes. not true, right? Yes, he really loved his hometown. He like wanted to think about it and go there a lot, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but he did like, he f- traveled, I would say quite widely for a very poor man, right? Like he went to Quebec, he went to Florida. He he went all these went to Chicago. Ma- yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Did he go to Chicago? He went to New York. He went um, to Chicago once, didn't he? Did he? It's possible. I know he went to Boston. Um, but he's traveled in lots of places I've never been to. Um, he didn't leave the continent. He didn't go to Mexico. I think the only country he ever went to, other than the U.S., was Canada. It was Canada and yeah. Quebec, right? So, yeah, he he was. But he, that sort of idea that he was a shut in and that he hated seeing people or whatever, um, that I think is leftovers from people's sort of introductions from those seventies, you know, anthologies and stuff like that where they would talk about him. And same with Robert E. Howard, you know, like you get a sort of set biography and, uh, it doesn't really, it, it uh, though technically true in some cases, it just sort of shows ignorance um and then uh he said it again he said he's mentally unwell uh but it expressed itself in racism and stories that appeared to have no women in them and i'm like well he's not mentally unwell unless you think you know having a really weird brain is being mentally unwell in which case i am very mentally unwell uh i'm not taking it personally i'm just uh, i'm using myself as a referent because I'm the best referent I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, he, his stories appear to have no women in them. That is technically true as well, although there are several stories with women in them. Um, sometimes those women are men, <laughs> right? Um, I'm thinking the thing on the doorstep, for example. Yep. Um, and uh, I, I saw a nice point that somebody made um I really like this point too, and I think it's cool. The outsider, uh, we don't know the gender of the main character. And there's a number of stories like that, in fact, where we don't know the gender. It's never stated. We assume it's male, but that's our assumption. And, uh, so I, I also don't think it's the end of the world if you have, uh, very few female characters in your book, because sometimes that's fine. You know, uh, I, I thought it was really strange when I was reading Lord of the Rings that there's almost no girls in the planet, right? There's Galadriel, there's, uh, I guess... Eowyn, uh, and that's about... Uh, no, don't forget, there's that one lady hobbit who wants to have Bilbo's house, right? Oh, 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 <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Bloetha. Blo- oh, yeah, so... Yeah, so whatever three? her name is. In a gig- in yeah, a and I think novel, there's three. I think Sam marries somebody named Rose. So yeah, there's four four females yeah, but, on. Oh, and Shellob, yeah. don't forget Shellob. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's not the end of the world if you don't have a lot of girls in your book. It, I, I, I guess it's not equal representation. Uh, but well, Eowyn's uh, not uh, wilting flower either. So no, no, but but it it it, it provides a false map of the world. And it, oh, and 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 you're gonna hate me for saying this, Jesse. By having so relatively few female characters, even if it's not your intention, it's your implicit. It implicitly says, 
Well, when, when you when you put a when you put characters or characters with with a point of view into a book, this these you're you're saying something about the world and about what you as a writer value and want to show the reader. And if you're and if you're and if, and if a gigantic possible. world has about five women in it, it's it. It, it's not. I'm not saying Tolkien was a sex. I'm not, I mean, people say Tolkien was a sex. He was that's, a chauvinist, that's ridiculous. Probably. He's it, probably it, a chauvinist, but but the thing it, is, it, is, you're right. It doesn't Paul, show him. But it, but it's it, his it, book. It shows a really imbalanced. Wants, right? it, it's a really imbalanced world that doesn't. Yeah, that I mean, women readers are going to, to read this and think, well, where are all the women? Where I mean, dude, I'm I mean, reading I, it as a little kid, and I'm thinking that. Uh, right, so 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 it's kind of said like, oh, well, this is not for you. I I, I mean, it, it, it's but it I think has, going I mean, that other has, direction, you know, you yeah, say I, we need to represent everybody. I I think well, it, it, it's it's a matter it's a matter of showing a more complete world. I'm not, it, it's not but, even about was that the point of the story? It's really interesting, well, right? Well, so it may not be the point of a story, but it makes for a better. A better world, better world building to have to show the full panoply of what the world has to offer. Instead of like, oh yeah, all these guys and five women and that's your world. I will point out, Paul, that you are criticizing Tolkien for his world building. (laughs) Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Lightning may strike me down. Everyone might kill me for for saying such things, but yes, yes, I I, I, I criticize Tolkien for his map. His map is awful. You know what? Uh, that's exact. I was thinking about that. Too. You know, I was tweeting about how uh, how if your map doesn't have the rivers flowing in the right directions, I, I'm thinking this is a bad sign. And that's exactly my point with uh, Will. Why? Why uh, I thought it was a bad sign to change the name of the town. And the okay, reason okay, is, yeah, yeah, is because it's a bad sign. The thing is, is I've read all of those uh, books that the um, lock and key books. Yeah. And they are fundamentally about some Lovecraftian ideas. They go underground. There's these primordial evil things. Um, The thing is, is it is not a Lovecraft story, but the fact that he, he did that originally and he did commit to, uh, I say commit. He said that he wasn't going to change it in the books and later printings. And that way lies madness. And I think that makes sense. But you know, there was two other adaptations of it. And I don't know the answer to this. I asked if anybody knew, but I couldn't find it easily. But there was an audio drama adaptation and there was also a, um, uh, previous pilot. And those could have been addressed there. And if they had been, you know, we, I, I think maybe, because it's very hard to understand psychology, but I think my worry is that he thought that this was the right thing to do. I think that the, he genuinely thinks that. But why does he think that? And I think the reason is he thinks that Lovecraft is toxic. And I think that that's absolutely true. But sometimes you need to deal with toxins because they're helpful. Like, for example, Locke in Lock and Key. Well, John Locke, I don't know if you guys know who he is. He's kind of famous. Um, yeah, yeah. I have one of his little books on there, my, there on my shelf at work. You know, he, he was uh, instrumental in setting up the United States and uh, making black people not equal to white people. Um, yeah. He didn't, you know, write uh, the laws, but he was definitely not, you know, and like, like 
the founding fathers are toxic in many respects, right? So the problem here is, is not that, uh, you can't address the problems that any particular author has. And honestly, I don't know that much about Richard Matheson's personal life, but eventually what you're going to have to do is sort of vet everybody to make sure that they didn't do anything bad, or you can just abandon illusions if you, if you follow this logic through. That's what I'm thinking, Paul. That's my, my worry well, is that I, 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 yeah, I, I know. Richard Matheson has to... psychology behind his stuff, but he's not Lovecraft. So just swapping him in would be like swapping in um, H.L. Gold for um, John W. Campbell Award, right? First of all, they're separate, you know, they were separate magazine guys. And H.L. Gold, you know, probably was mean to his wife at one point. I don't know. Um, he was agoraphobic. Does that agoraphobic's not something we should shame him for? But like, why should we research all this shit? Well, just take the warts and all approach and say, look, the guy was fucking insane uh, when it came to racism, but he was thinking it through and and he was wrong. But you can still, you know, you don't have to. So I, I think it was like a commercial thing ultimately in his mind that this is just going to cause problems. And also, you know, I heard these bad things about him. It'd be like naming your town Weinstein. You know, nobody wants to do that. But if you're, yeah. if you're, if, if it was Weinstein, Ohio, instead of Weinberg or whatever it is, uh, that famous novel. Yeah. Weinsberg, yeah. Weinsberg. Weinsberg. People yeah. might change it because of commercial concerns, because of just the idea of it being toxic. He's sort of shutting down problems. And I think that that's a very dangerous way to go. Even he thinks so in that going back and revising, like he, he was saying, Star Wars gets revised is a mistake. Um, now adapting, it's his thing. Somebody said they can respect his thing. I'm like, it's not about respect. I'm just saying for me, this is a very bad sign. And also the music on the show doesn't help. But, but in, in, in this cultural moment, I can see why he would do it. Is, is, is it, is it ultimately the best thing? Um, I, I mean, I may, I mean, if um, I, I think his concern is, okay, I leave this in people watch it and the, and people upset about that name will drown out any of the virtues of the actual that's story. What I, that's what I was thinking. But so, he, so, he, he, doesn't, he didn't say that that was his motivation. But well, I, well, I, he, I would expect he, but, but, that. But, that but that's kind of, that's kind of a bald capitalistic view that you generally doesn't get voiced by a creator. Like, oh, yes, I'm going to change this because that. Yeah, because this thing I, failed a I bunch of times previously, right? He, said, he tried to do a Hulu series. He tried to do it as a Fox uh, pilot. It, you know, it, it it was really worth adapting is the idea, um, and it so, finally has been adapted. But so, maybe so, those were trip falls that he wanted to avoid it. So, so, so I can tie in my love of role playing games. So there is a role playing game that I actually playing in the campaign in last night, as a matter of fact, called Fate of Cthulhu. I saw that tweet. Yes. And in the book, they talk about Lovecraft and they talk about how bleeping racist he is and. But it says that on the other hand, we can use these things to tell stories, but we're we're not going to sugarcoat Lovecraft was a racist. But here's here's what we can use in the mythos to tell great stories in the role playing game. And the creators get lots of crap on on Twitter from people saying, oh, you can't say that about Lovecraft. You're you're cancel culture. And it's like. They haven't even read the book or even. No, I saw the video for that for that. uh, There was a Kickstarter or something. And I was like, oh, seriously? Because it was like, it was yeah, like. Yeah, it was a Kickstarter. Yeah. What's the name of that one? 
Bait of Cthulhu. Bait of Cthulhu, right. So I, I saw that and I was like, this does sound, it's like, we wanna, we wanna capitalize on the Lovecraft brand. He's public domain. We can do whatever the fuck we want with it. That's really cool. But we don't want the Lovecraft part. Can we just get rid of that? No, I'm like, it's, it's, it's not even a matter of what's, we don't want the Lovecraft part. Like, we're going to acknowledge who Lovecraft was. But what, I mean, they still use, they still use the mythos in, and engage with it in interesting ways, at least as far as the GM that's GMing the game is doing. Mm. I actually haven't read the book because I promised not to, because I don't actually want to read something that the GM's actually borrowing from the book for the mm-hmm. campaign. Mm-hmm. But, it's so it's it's a matter it's it's a matter of yes I mean we, this interesting stuff that you create and we we can acknowledge that and the fact that Lovecraft as a person himself is not not someone we want to honor we want to honor the work the the work that we can as well as acknowledging who he was and that and that nuance is I mean they're getting more pushback from from rabid Lovecraft fans than anything else which is really ridiculous. Then I can't think I push back from people. But like, I think oh, it's the same kind of pushback crap. that I'm giving, right? And the, the, well, it's the pushback the other, is it's coming from the other direction. It's coming from it's coming from reactionaries who say, Oh, you can't talk, you can't say anything bad about, about Lovecraft. That's you're you're cancel culture and you're doing all this, you're you're being you're being politically correct and so it's 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 a it's a it's the opposite directions countervailing force to Quote, quote, to quote, quote, normal cancel culture, like, oh, we have to rename Lovecraft Matheson in lock and key. So there are, there are forces, there are forces from various agents trying to not allow us to engage with things and move forward in constructive ways. And it is, it is a pity because for all, all terrible Lovecraft was in his racist beliefs, his mythos is, bloody interesting why well, wouldn't keep showing up on the podcast to do his shows well i I, yeah. I find his mythos not interesting at all and i i'm like i'm not sure we should honor anybody i'm pretty sure that that's a mistake some you know when <laughs> what did uh trump <laughs> just on just honored uh a very racist um super annoying asshole who was not as popular as people say he was rush limbaugh that's him because oh, he's God. dying of cancer that was yeah, a troll yeah. move, right? That was a troll move. It, didn't Rosa Parks get the same medal or something? Like, yeah, something come like on. That. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah that, that is the president trolling the nation. I, I think that you're, you're, if you take on honors, uh, what did you say? Uh, Will, you said you were an honorary Kentucky colonel or something like that. Oh, yeah. I'm a member of the uh, Honorable Order of Kentucky Colonels. Right. Uh, which is just like a, a thing the government gives away here. Right. So uh, do you, uh, you know, insist that people call you colonel? Uh, absolutely not. Because <laughs> if you did, I'd say, what the fuck do you think you're doing, buddy? Um, uh, uh, you know, when Kim Campbell, former prime minister of Canada, uh, walks around, she can be entitled to be called Right Honorable Kim Campbell because she was former prime minister, right? I think that that should not happen. Um, I think that the, all those honors are a mistake. It's important to read people, you, you know, who have really good ideas because they're interesting. Um, you know, th- what's his name? Um, uh, there, there's uh, so many weird things going on on Twitter, and one of them was, was didn't I say save it for the podcast to you? Uh, well, I, I well, it was a hashtag SDIF. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that one? I feel like there was a related conversation yeah. going on about um, 
uh, you oh, know, uh, people just... are too into reading like uh, science fiction. For some reason, it's like from the 50s through the 70s is right. the era that gets talked about in these conversations. Right. Um, and people are too into reading that and it's outdated cliches. And what we need to uh, be doing is reading contemporary SF instead. And since like all of like science fiction Twitter is like aspirant authors, right? Um, <laughs> like, hey like, now, like, <laughs> it's like, kind of true, <laughs> but yes. Uh, like so, it's it's pitched as uh, like self marketing advice. It's like yeah, group you should learn yeah. uh, contemporary uh, editors' tastes so that you can. Uh, write like that instead of writing like uh, these like people from the 50s through the 70s. Um, and, you know, I uh, like my problem with the conversation uh, was that uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, it seems like people started to do like some really interesting literary things with uh, science fiction in the 60s and 70s. Right. Like um, so. uh you know, we're making a generalization about uh, a time period here. Um, and it's also like, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, I worry. Um, I don't know. I just find it worrisome. Hmm. Maybe worry is the wrong term. No, I use. think that that's the right word. Yeah, I just, it's, I it's find it somewhat clear. worrisome. Because I don't, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think the critics of the like classic SF from that period like have like necessarily uh, uh, really engaged with the SF from that period, or they like they're using um, you know that period as a shorthand to refer to like maybe like Asimov, uh, Clark, and Heinlein, you know, like the big three or mm -hmm. like the former big three. You could mm -hmm. even say, um, and like you know, I think there's a uh, uh, you know, a lot of like criticisms to be made of those people as uh, individuals and also like a, of their work. But um, I also think there were a lot of things going on in uh, science fiction fantasy, um, really, uh, you know, going back, uh, you know, into the 19th century. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So I think there's like always like interesting stuff there. Um, I'm like. I'm troubled that it's uh, it's about uh, these uh, aspirant authors reading the wrong fiction and so producing the wrong fiction. Mm -hmm. um, I've got the tweet here. Can I read it, Paul? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it, this is from somebody named Primi Soros. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, Primi Mohammed, who wrote the Beneath the Rising book I've told you about. Right, right. Uh, so it's it starts with. Um, a tweet says, uh, why are people objecting to this statement? This is a good and wise statement. And this is from somebody named at Sarah Nichols. Uh, sorry, Nicholas. Uh, please, I beg you, if you want to be published, a uh, published author, uh, read one effing book published in the last five years. Just start with one. I'm begging. And well, when the, the, the way this came out of this, uh -huh. because a, a couple, a couple of editors and agents, complained on Twitter that basically they were getting submissions of books and the authors were proud of having not read anything in years. And they thought like, uh, and, and thinking that their book is unique, a unique special snowflake and that they were proud of their ignorance of the field. And so, so that's why it started blowing up at least from one particular direction. It's like, I'm proud of my ignorance of music, Paul. <laughs> 
Well, yes, <laughs> it doesn't help me at all. But you're also not trying to be a musician at the same time. <laughs> it, it, it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be like trying to make a as uh, you'd be trying to make a classic rock song mm. without being and having any clue what what current musical genres are or having listened yeah. to any music in 40 years and i mean it's like i think that's called it, outsider it, it, art right it, it, i like it, that it, stuff well it, i mean it shows almost like a i i think there's an unspoken thought that this is contempt for modern fiction and so yeah, so I have contempt for modern fiction. I have contempt for almost all fiction because most well, of it's well, terrible. I, I the know, Sturgeon Law, right? Do. But but this this also is, although no one said it, this is also a, a distant descendant echo of the whole puppy problem. The, yeah, I, I was not around for puppies. that, so I, I've only heard about it through you and what little I've read on on yep, Wikipedia. So, and so, such. so I, I think it's also like, oh yes. Fiction was best in the past, and now it's all now politically correct and terrible, and isn't awful. And can't we go back to the way fiction was when when men were men and women were women, and that's the kind of fiction we want? And it's not yeah, back in uh, 1966 when uh, <laughs> when Frederick <laughs> Paul wrote Day Million, when men were uh, men and women well, were I, women. Well, it, it's 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 a benighted view now as it was then, but it's 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 it's, it's a it's a it's a look back at the past of a past that never really was mm. and 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 so so these aspirant authors saying oh well, I haven't read anything and I'm proud of it that sort of ignorance really came off wrong and this is why it blew up it's like who are you to think that oh you're the best thing ever you haven't even opened a book in the last five years you have no idea well, what anybody's uh, reading yeah some people are proud of their ignorance and. I mean, I'm not. I'm not technically proud of my ignorance of music. Yes, <laughs> but you're not trying to be a musician. Yes, I, I, but I, I, you I, might. I, you might make the argument that, uh, and I'm not sh- saying anybody's actually doing this. One might make the argument that um, by saying I had, n- I've not been paying attention to that stuff. My stuff's going to be different, and I actually think that this is a pretty strong argument. When I want to show creativity, I don't try and copy the latest thing that's on twi- Twitter. I try and copy something from a long time ago, right? Uh, something that's sort of forgotten. But don't, but don't, don't you think um, at least being cognitively aware of what people's doing? So, I mean, you don't... Yeah, so they, is, they, is they, it a commercial they, they, concern is my question. Like, if, is, is this good commercial advice? I have no idea. But if, if it's because the stuff from the 50s and 70s... Like, uh, you know, there's a great... Um, publishing house that is not science fiction it's called uh, hard case crime and he tweets out his terrible submissions you know people submitting their books and you know the cover letter and he he is savage and the reason he's savage is because there's a lot of people who have no sense of criticality when it comes to their own stuff so this might be the same sort of thing you know i've written I, this I, great... I think it's an echo yeah yeah and so it's not limited to uh and, and what's funny is that Hard Case Crime is a retro house in the sense that they publish old and new, but their old stuff is stuff that hasn't been published in a long time, and they give them the old-style uh, gold medal paperback original-style cover artist. They got even the same artist, you know, Glenn Orbick and all sorts of great, you know, really talented folks who are being underused today and put them back doing what they're good at, which is great cover art. So... The, the the retro the retro um, throwback thing is is quite nice I think because it allows us to see old stuff 
and uh, the reason I, I care so much about stuff that's old, 1963 or prior, is because we can do whatever we want with it rather than, um, you know, if something's published. And the thing is, is not everything that's modern is SJW. And uh, I, I use this phrase only in the sense because it's a handle, not because I have any sense of how it means for everybody personally. It's just, you know, everybody knows what it means, I think, sort of as a, that general direction, whatever that is. Anyways, the um, SJW handle doesn't apply to uh, people like um, Ted Chang, right, who does publish in sort of the modern era. You know, I'm a little behind on his stuff, but he's slow. Um, and, you know, you never read one of his and say this is, um, this is about representation, right? It's, it's just about the ideas. And I, I think that there are – Especially in novels, there's ways of, of, you know, showing your agenda. But if your agenda is just to tell a story, um, and not represent everybody, right? I, I, I think representation is useful. You know, it's nice to see, uh, like, for example, I think of, I always think of the thing that happened to me at the end of reading Starship Troopers. I'm like, holy shit, this kid's Filipino. Cool. Right. Um, he did that on purpose. But that, but that, that, uh, yeah, he did do that on purpose. I just wish he did it on page one rather than the last page. Why, Paul? Why? Because it, uh, why? Because it feels like to use a contemporary, contemporary, uh, reveal. It feels like when J.K. Rowling said, "Oh yeah, Dumbledore's gay." You <laughs> hey, never except, saw it. except that wasn't in the book. <laughs> no, but, but 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 I mean, but but it's the last page. It, it it dilutes the impact and it and doesn't quite do any- the opposite. Quite the opposite. Imagine it, you're it, a, a Filipino kid reading that yeah, book. But, but, but then you're using that as a as a plot twist rather than a world like, like No, oh, he's, he's delivering long. He's delivering the diversity message in a way that uh, and then the message is you know everybody's under the sun is a human being. Every person under the sun is a human being, and none of us are better than others because of our genetic heritage or our, uh, our uh, gritty determination or what, whatever sort of uh, chauvinistic, assholeish things you got. He's saying, look, this, this guy you've been spending all this time with, white kid from the United States, he's a Filipino. And the Filipinos, you know, at that time – and." S- Right, right after World War II, what did the Filipinos want? Independence. Right after they got rid of the Japanese, what do they want? They want independence from the United States. What do they get? Not independence. Right. So this is uh, uh, Heinlein was very subversive. I mean, we just read that book where he beca- he has the main yes. character become a girl, and yeah, there are problematic issues in it in the sense that um, he basically, uh, I think it's a class thing rather than a gender thing. Um, but we litigated dude, that book already. We, d- but, uh, but I think it, it's like it's to say that stuff uh, from the fifties and seventies has no um, importance for reading today. I think is it, it is really bad idea. And more importantly, I saw somebody's really funny thing. I don't know if you saw this, Will. Um, somebody pointed out that it, it's like. Um, you, you're studying pharma- pharmacology and you only study about drugs patented in the last five years or last 10, 15 years rather than studying all the patents 
uh, or more importantly, all the drugs that are in the pharmacy, right? And I think this is a great thing because uh, today we're doing a story from 1935 that is yeah. super fucking modern in many respects. It it pioneered so much. And if you say you don't need to read stuff from a long time ago, you're really not understanding that science fiction can pioneer. It maybe doesn't do it all the time, and very few people are as pioneering as others, you know. I don't think uh, Sheckley is pioneering in tech, but he certainly was pioneering in mind expansion, right? I, I don't think of uh, Heinlein is pioneering in um, in uh, uh, world building, but he was pioneering in all sorts of social social ideas, right? Different ways of living, folk ways, and also did a lot for the moon landing and stuff like that. <laughs> So there, there are great, there is great value in researching, uh, aka reading old stuff from fifties to the seventies, and there's lots of dreck there too. I mean, I, I read. Some. Well, well, hey. well, 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 yeah, Sturgeon's law applies to every age and every every year of science fiction. Ninety-nine percent of crap. Tweeting his uh, his reviews of these stories from Planet, oh, Planet Stories. stories yeah. Man, some of those are like, oh my god, how can you get through that? <laughs> um, I, really slowly um, is is the answer. I, I'm reading those stories at about one a week, but um, it's still like I don't know. I, I think it's interesting to see uh, how the genres uh, develop over time. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about Tolkien, you know, uh, uh, his world building's messed up, uh, he's got, uh, only three or four women that we like even hear about mm-hmm. five, if you count the spider lady. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, you don't really get to Tolkien without like Haggard, right? Like, and so that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to read it in order either. It's not like you have to start at the uh, beginning and go to the end. You can read it all out of order, which is, I think, probably how we should do it, because it seemed to work for me and probably for you, Paul, and I'm sure for you, Will. <laughs> uh, yeah, we I didn't don't know. think that I uh, have to go to, like, like you know, um, how do you even, like, put a... Uh, I don't have to go and read about, like, Pantagruel before I, like... That's right. Uh, <laughs> Go and read Star Maker. Yeah, you don't start with, <laughs> with uh, Plato and the ut- utop- Utopia by Thomas More. You start with whatever book is at hand. And then from there, you'll find other things that you want to read. And hopefully, there'll be books that are handy and available that are also good. <laughs> right? And good that's is... A, that's a good prayer. <laughs> it, it is a prayer almost, right? Um, and, and, and the thing is, is... That's sort of what the mission of my podcast is, is like, I want to discover all these cool stories and have an excuse to be forced to read them. (laughs) Because otherwise, I might only play computer games all day like some people do. Um, And that's bad. I think only playing computer games all day is bad. I think only doing, you know, TV watching, you know, that's bad. You have to mix it up. You have to have some, some real literature in behind it. I think so it really speak, helps you. Speaking of doing a podcast, maybe it's time for us to do a podcast. Hey, we're, we're doing a podcast. This is all just extras for the end. Um, yeah. So the other thing is, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so, you know, we're discovering, uh, Weinbaum today. Is, is that Weinbaum? Mm-hmm. Weinbaum? Weinbaum, um, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he's like a pretty interesting figure, I think. Um, 
you know how there's like a phenomenon of like uh, people get really into HP Lovecraft, HP Lovecraft, and Lovecraft. Like, Lovecraft. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> that's my next Kickstarter. Is uh, dude, uh, that's yeah, mean. Lovecraft. <laughs> um, but uh, they get really into uh, HP Lovecraft. Yeah, people get into that. They become like Lovecraft guys almost, and mm-hmm. it's like people across the like political spectrum too. I mean, you know, there's the like uh, the like right wing Lovecraft guys mm-hmm. that are like. Uh, like you can't say anything mean about HP Lovecraft. Like you basically want to burn his books. Um, and then, but you also get like the left wing, like, uh, Lovecraft guys, like on the far left, you have like Nick Mamatas and like, so people just get obsessed with Lovecraft. Mm. And I feel like maybe people could get obsessed with, uh, Weinbaum in the same way, you know, like why aren't there like Weinbaum guys and gals and non-binary individuals? Let's get started on the actual content and see if that comes up right away. Cause I think that's a good point. Here we go. You ready? Yes. All right. Paul, you ready? I am ready. So, recorder's going. I'm I, I've had the recorders excellent. going for a while because I didn't realize we're going to have this 40-minute digression. That's but okay. a good one. It's a good one, Paul. All right. Here we go. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hey, I'm Will. And we're going to talk about... <laughs> 